this is James Why Not, and you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. <laughs> That was nice. Okay, good. It's like you were practicing or something. It's like I was ready for it. I was waiting. That's interesting. I, I just always assumed that the echo happened live. Nope. Okay. <laughs> it, all the magic happens in post. Oh, man. And I'm <laughs> ruining it by talking about it here. I'm assuming there's music playing right now. Ah, uh, just a little drum thing, but they can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Our second episode, or the second... The, the first episode following the woohoo, everybody's waiting for me, and I thought Vince had just canned it from the first time I did it, oh. and he was just going to keep using that one. But no, no. it's it's an original woohoo every episode. Wow, nice. my contribution! I can say goodnight. That's what keeps it fresh and lively. That's right. <laughs> Who was the? You guys got somebody to do a bumper, and they did the woohoo. Tom Kelly. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I that. that went over like a lead balloon. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Somebody's doing my woohoo? No way. I, was, I, I don't even know how close I was to him. All of a sudden, I heard it. And my neck just hurt around real quick. Everybody around me got whiplash. That's funny. We were sucked into your vortex. <laughs> That's right. And you'll be sucked into our vortex, hopefully, because this is 11 O'Clock Comics, episode, are you ready? 550. Damn. It's craziness. And I am Vince B. You are Vince B. It feels, it doesn't even feel like our 550th episode. But nonetheless, I am David A. Price. We're just getting started. That was just a warm up. It's true. And the boy is rocking the boat somewhere, not here. So Jason cannot be with us, but we got an upgrade. Big time. Who else is on the show besides me? (laughs) Oh, Steranko did get back to you? (laughs) You know him. Uh, You've heard his name bandied about here many, many times. Most uh, notably during our 11 O'Clockers, our yearly awards ceremony. And he has won on numerous occasions. He is the brilliant writer, illustrator of the amazing Calamity of Challenge, you know it as Cancor. It's Matthew Allison. Hi, everybody. Thank you. He's amazing. We met him at Heroes, and we somehow coaxed him. We met him in the flesh. You, David, you had met him before. I met him at my the first Heroes, Jason, and I went. To. Yes. Well, I had met. This is my first time seeing him. So yes, I was the yeah, virgin. You weren't there last year, right, Matthew? I think it's been, yeah, it had been two years because okay. I hadn't started Calamity a Challenge the first time I was there, and I started that in 2016. Well, maybe, yeah. So, yeah, I think I was there not last year, but the year before. I think you're right, yeah. Cancor to me is like my children. I can't imagine my life without it. <laughs> like what, what, once the kids came into my life, I'm like, damn, I don't even remember what it was like before they came in. Same thing with Cancor. I can't. Remember reading comics before Cancor. Wow, I'm honored. You That's sh- great. You should yeah. be. You should be. But anyway, it is time to do the thing we always do. And what's that? Tell you who made this thing response. Who's responsible for the show? It is Discount Comic Book Service. 
dcbservice.com, right, Dap? Indeed. The list of specials is up, and it is crazy. From Image, some guy named Scotty Young has a new book with Aaron Conley. It's called Bully Wars, and you can get the first issue for what? Three ninety nine? No, $1.99. That's 50% off. Pulling the old fast one, the same thing that Image does, if you paid, even at a discount price, for Boom's Coda, which is an awesome series, written by Simon Spurrier and Matthias Bergara is the artist. If you paid discounted price on the first four issues, you're going to be a little torqued because you can get the first trade paperback of Coda, which contains issues one to four, for four ninety nine. That's craziness. That's a little more than a dollar an issue. And last but not least, Dap has been singing the praises of this series. I didn't read any of it yet. So I am eager to get my hands on this trade paperback. It is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Riley Rosmo. And it is called Deathbed. Yes. The trade paperback collects issues one to six from Vertigo. How much are you going to pay? Eight dollars and forty nine cents. That's insane. Go there. Discount comic book service. You'll get everything you want cheap. DCBService.com. That's that. Good lord. That's the cheapness. It is. Well, I have to add something to that. The second issue of Bully Wars, people should order as well because I'm doing a variant cover on that. Get out. Self promotion there. That's <laughs> why you're here. Yes, exactly. Well, that's amazing. How did that come about? I'm, Aaron Conley and I are best friends, so he had asked me to do that um, a couple months ago, and uh, I was more than happy to. And the book looks amazing. I've, I've seen the originals, and Aaron is killing it. It's amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to get it. Aaron always kills it. And yeah, um with you know, with that Scotty guy on board, it it may just be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it might be slightly successful. Oh, <laughs> uh, they got a serious upgrade on the covers now too. I'm gonna have to get that. And is that a limited variant, or is it just? I don't know how that works. What does does Image do? Do they do the same thing where you have to order a certain amount to get the variants, or they just do? Um, um from my maybe on some of them. Yeah, like I, I I know I, the um, I know the I Hate Fairyland variant. That's the only version of it I get. That's that's just cover B, so it's always available. But I know that um, Sinkevich did a variant recently, which I so so Scotty made me buy two fucking copies of the comics. So then you have uh, I know I, I know Bill has also done variants for, and Walking Dead has had a bunch of variants. Okay. And then they've also had the the twenty five year variant. So I don't. I actually don't know if they do like Marvel and DC, where it's like one out of every one hundred. I don't think they do because it's yeah. image and and the 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 creators are basically covering the cost. So it's probably even. Yeah. yeah or whatever. Or whatever gets ordered, I guess, gets printed. I don't go to an LCS that often, but I feel like the last time I went to buy an image book, the way they were stacked on the shelf was like every other one was a variant. So it seemed like it was just an even amount. Well, I know which one I'm going to order on issue number two. Okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They they don't limit it for um, uh, Hackslash and uh, Spawn. 
because I always get the variants on those. The the Tim Seeley covers on Hack Slash are good, but it always seems like the variant is features Cassie more prominently and suggestively, so I always get the variant on that. But it's not any more money, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Keep on the lookout for Matthew's cover of uh, Bully Wars number two. And get number one, so you won't be lost when you read number two. Dap. Yes, sir. What the heck are you drinking? I am drinking something new. Uh, it is a Cabernet Sauvignon from California. A. It is Murphy Good, G-O-O-D-E, uh, established 1985. It says... Um, here at Murphy Good, we like to think of Cabernet Sauvignon as the king. So I had to drink it tonight. It is quite tasty. I mean, I may finish this bottle tonight, which is not something I had intended. It's just, it's that smooth. It's that good. I may have a new um, bottle to keep in stock when I just feel like having a nice glass of wine. Nice. What are you drinking? Well, in honor of our very, very special guest... I went to the wine store on my break today, and I picked up two bottles. I'm not going to drink them both because then I'll be more stupid than usual. I am drinking Gnarly Head Cabernet Sauvignon. The Gnarly Head, nice. Yeah. What are you, you liking it though, right? Oh, it's good, yeah. And it wasn't expensive. It was no, less than 10 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's good bang for the buck. Matthew, what are you drinking? Well, uh, I don't actually drink alcohol, so I decided to get something that's traditional for the show, and I tracked down a 12-pack of Pepsi Max. <laughs> nice. <laughs> God love you. Long week. Guy, but this is good. This might be my new sugar-free drink. Let's just jump just- right into the Cancor, because I have a ton of questions. Nice. Okay. Last time we talked about Cancor, I was kind of struck by how personal it got. Mm-hmm. And because it didn't start off that way. And it was, it was these extremely larger than life characters beating the shit out of each other and body horror and amazingly designed characters. But then you started to creep into the story. And and it, yes. it, it it surprised me. And with the recently released issue four, I see what you were doing. Mm-hmm. You're sneaky. <laughs> and you just mentioned that you don't drink alcohol. And there's my favorite sequence from issue number four is the Viewmaster Reels strip. Okay. Now that's saying something. When you have all these amazingly designed characters just cosmic battlefield and then you bring it home into this black and white 12 panel page and that's the part that really grabbed me that really struck it resonated with me because it was more it was more real sure and is that autobiographical or are you embellishing at all or is well i mean yes it is 100 percent autobiographical um one thing i was going to do with that fourth issue was have 
a larger black and white section that was going to be me in my 20s, depressed out of my mind, drinking heavily um, with major anger management issues, just destroying things, um, kicking holes in walls and starting fights at bars. And my wife, in her wisdom, said, you can take all that and tell it in a very simple way, probably in just one page. And so I took out all the destruction and, and anger and tried to get to the core of like what my issue was at that point in my life. And it was a lot of just displaced creativity and um, a desire to do something reasonable with my life other than just drink and buy shit. <laughs> so uh, I tried to just condense that into 12 panels and, and see if that tied everything together. I hope it did somewhat. I, I found it very scary because every one of the excuses I've used on numerous occasions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, almost verbatim. It's like, holy shit, psychotronics out. I can't draw because <laughs> I, I have to read this thing cover to cover twice. And yes. and the the substance stuff and the just I've been in every one of these situations and it's just uh, I I see what you were doing now and it all became clear with the very last page. Mm -hmm. You're a sneaky little bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't. It's not completely clear because some somebody told me that they got that fourth issue and the coupon had been clipped out of the back. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Oh no! Yeah, that, was, that was crazy. I, and then I started seeing more and more people complain about that. I was like, huh? I wonder if somehow in the shipping. <laughs> So I have that final panel that reveals who Kankor is. I'm sure everybody's seen it, or they should have. But <laughs> for those of you who don't know, who haven't read Kankor number four, the last page is a faux advertisement for uh, Kankor Unmasked, a poster. Who is he? Only $6.23. Fill out this form and mail to the address below. And where the coupon was, Matthew physically cut the coupon out of his own comic. So on the f preceding page, you have an interaction between Kankor and uh, Detective Scripps. And he says, you know what? This is Kankor. He's like, uh, I'm leaving. And, and Scripps is pleased. And he said, there's, there's a point in the narrative where Kankor pulls up his mask and Scripps says, good Lord, choke you. And you never see who it is because that's the panel that was cut on the flip side from the, the, the coupon. But Matthew leaves just enough of the, the, the forehead of Cancord so you pretty much can tell who it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was amazing because it, it takes everything that you talk about in the, the black and white segments and this is you working out your aggression. Yeah. yeah. It, that's amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I really, I debated on that coupon page for like a year after I, I thought of it. And I tell people about it and everybody was like, oh, you have to do it. And partly I was like, I don't want to sit and clip 500 <laughs> coupons out of all these books. Um I thought and it was 50,000. 
Wasn't it 50,000 coupons you clipped? 50,000, yeah. <laughs> I do, I do them 500 at a time. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, the other issue is will that happen in the trade? I don't know if I can get somebody to invest in die-cutting those pages. But it's an epilogue, so I can probably just update it or change that page. Something. I don't know. I, I, I think it's... <clears throat> It's the, the, the gem in the crown. I mean, it, uh, it, it adds such a, a powerful layer to everything. I don't know. I mean, yes, logistically, it may be difficult to get that page to, to, to do that in the trade, but I don't know. I, I love it. I think it's perfect. No, thank you. What, what do you think, Dep? I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, it's weird. I, I absolutely appreciate the um, the skill involved in in telling a story like Hancor, but honestly, I every time I open up an issue, I'm mesmerized by the line work. It's almost sometimes, and I'm glad most of the series is is wordless. At least, at least the more. Um, uh, the crazy scenes are are for the most part wordless, but I I just stare at your work, Matthew, and the fact that you do fucking microns is just <laughs> blows my mind. And and I because I when I when I realized rapidographs were just a little too um, lifeless, yeah, not exactly what I was going for. Then I started messing with the pigment microns and and screwing around with the different obviously they all have different um tip sizes and now they have the brushes and so i was i've, I've always kind of played with those and, and i mean i even i would use them to write notes in school so i'd always know you know just okay. just basically how, how, how they felt um in my hand but i i'm just i i absolutely i mean vince loves the story i love the artwork i i i just i would love a portfolio of of just the pages. I mean, not now. I own a page, but it's it's one of those things where it's. I, I listen to Vince for when he reads an issue, so I can because so, obviously I've missed things because I'm not really paying attention to the story because I'm just so focused on what you put down on the page, and that's and and that's a that's my loss, and and two it's a disservice because you're obviously telling a story, and I'm. I'm just, I block all of that out just to yeah. look at what you're doing on the page. I mean, that's sort of by design. Honestly, I rarely read comics. I just sit and look at the art. So most of the comic books that I own, I don't think I've actually read. I've got, you know, a basement full of comics. And I'll go down and spend an hour or two just flipping through and looking at art. Um, so when I created this book, it was really not meant to be some, you know, work of literature by any means. I'm not a writer and I don't plot these. I don't do dialogue until I'm done coloring and I sit down to letter it is when I actually write the dialogue. And that's done in the course of like two or three hours. So if, if you aren't really paying attention to that, I don't, it doesn't hurt my feelings in the least. <laughs> 
Okay, but there, there is, I mean, the, the visual layer is amazing. I see, obviously, Wrightson um, mixed with, I mean, you you could take, uh, there, 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 there's some Corbin in there, right? Some Simpson, I mean, do, sure. um, but the, the, the conceptual additions that you, that you, stuck in there like the fact that the lettering the sound effects are three-dimensional mm-hmm. it it's kind of scares the shit out of me <laughs> that that these physical letters exist in this this space because then it kind of casts a, a shadow on everything meaning that these the the fact that these characters are interacting with these letters means that these letters have volume they have uh-huh. they have weight it's almost like there's a there's a some kind of a godlike supreme being that's setting the, everything up on this this cosmic stage, and these characters are beating the shit out of each other for this character's enjoyment, this this godlike being's enjoyment, and the godlike being would in fact be you. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think. You know, if, if people were to ask me where does Kankor take place, I would say it takes place in a comic book. That I know that sounds a little vague, but it's that's how I look at it. Is I'm using the you know what you would normally see in a comic book is a flat, one-dimensional letter and trying to make it a physical thing that exists there. And if I don't know how much you want me to reveal if, if any of this is going to ruin any of it for you, but that actually comes from, um, do you remember the Letterman cartoons on electric company? Yes. 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 He, somebody would yell something out and the words would be up in the sky, the letters Letterman would come and the word would be tub and he'd come and he'd place an E, a physical E at the end of tub and turn it into tube or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, really intend for that to be but i knew it was somewhere in the back of my mind like where did where is this coming from and i was watching some old electric company i was like there you go that's that's where i i got that from so i can't take total credit for it whoever did those letterman cartoons were the ones but um yeah and as far as like i do enjoy seeing these characters get the shit beat out of them because some of them deserve it to be honest with you (laughs) It's 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 just an amazing addition that uh, those Electric Company cartoons they never really leave you. No, no. Um, and the Schoolhouse Rock things too. I mean, I, I think they did as much as they informed us. I think they did a, a massive amount of damage because you can't get rid of them. They're always with us. That stupid bill on Capitol Hill. It's just mm-hmm. like. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Or it's the plumber. I've come to fix the sink. Oh, stop. (laughs) And a lot of that stuff, it's funny. You look at now and you're like, those are vaudeville routines. They are. Who is As a little kid. (laughs) But yeah, that's, um, and you see, you know, the, the plumber gets so upset. He becomes, you know, prone horizontal in the air and kind of drops like a leaf onto the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of stuff, yeah, definitely stuck with me. The power of art, yeah. So we mentioned Wrightson. I mean, I was just guessing. Who are some of your influences? Uh, 
I know this sounds like a cheat of an answer, but there's way too many to list. And I, my biggest fear has always been to be compared to a specific artist. Um, so I, if I catch myself tr- doing a little bit too much of somebody, I, I'll kind of step back and maybe add a little of somebody else. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Charles Burns. I hear that a lot. Yep. Um, yep. That's definitely a, an influence. Uh, my my favorite cartoonist of all time is is Jim Woodring. <laughs> I showed Jim Woodring a Cancor comic at SPX a couple of years ago, and I said, "You're a huge influence on me." And you know, I, I'm trying to do something similar. And he looked through the book. He's like, "Yeah, I don't see it." And handed it back to me. But I think what he was expecting was t- for me to be drawing a book that looked like Frank. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm. My my thing has always been I want to do with superheroes what Woodring and Al Columbia do with funny animals. So, you know, but you you certainly captured Woodring's dreamlike, the the dreamlike qualities of his work. Okay, yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, it's it's hard to I don't want to make that comparison because you can't beat that guy you just can't but um right right and and we're climbing up a very big hill here because i'm i'm stuck in the moment i've been reading david lynch's um (laughs) room room to dream book okay yeah and he lays it he lays it out he said a lot of my stuff yes blue velvet generated thousands of doctoral theses and um the, a lot, my, the majority of my work is not meant to be be discussed. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 exists and it works best at a level that cannot be described with these these cumbersome things called words. Yeah, you you feel yeah. it, and in somewhere in your brain it elicits or instigates a release of chemicals, but. To put a word to the events is impossible, and I think that is that applies to your work as well. Um, if you sat down and tried to describe an issue of Cancor to someone, it'd be like, "Oh, this sounds like the most boring thing ever." But it, but mm-hmm. it's it's not because the 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 devil in the details can't be captured with these little silly things called letters. Sure, and. and so talking about it, I think we're at a disadvantage. You feel it. I hope so. I hope that's what happens. I want it to be visceral. I I have a really tough time pitching the book to people. Um, you know, someone will come up to me at a convention and say, what's this about? And I'll flip through pages and, and give them a rough idea and either... Most most often they'll say, well, I like the art, I'm going to buy it. And occasionally someone will come back and say, well, I had to read this three times and I still don't know what's happening. <laughs> but they read it three times. Right, yeah. It's better than saying I don't get it and, you know, putting it in a box somewhere. So that makes me feel like at least something compelled them to go back to it. So if that happens, I'm totally happy with that. But I, I agree with what you're saying about Lynch and, and his philosophy about um, you – Sometimes you don't have to explain things. Sometimes you don't have to put things into words. And I I don't... Did you get the the Twin Peaks um, Season 3 box set? I did. Behind the scenes footage? I haven't watched it yet. 
Okay. I was hesitant to watch it because I, again, I didn't want there to be an explanation for Dougie or evil Cooper or anything like that. But they really just show him on set talking to the actors and he is so guarded with what he's telling them. Like he doesn't want to reveal, but he sees that the actors are getting frustrated. There's a scene where he's talking to to Sherilyn Fenn and you could tell she's like, just tell me what is happening with my character. He's basically like, "Mm, just trust me. And I get it because when you see what happens to Audrey, it's like, I still don't know what happened to Audrey. Same. I can't. I've, you know, I've talked about it with my wife and I'm like, I don't know what that, any of that meant. I'm curious and I want to go back and watch it, but I wouldn't want to hear an audio commentary where he explained it. No, no, no. And it, it was, a, it was a dalliance too, because it wasn't a dalliance because he invested significant screen time on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to just do what he did at the end of that, that her little story was, I mean, it's ballsy, but it is Lynch. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. And and I love it when he's asked to um elaborate on something. Someone will confront him with a you said this about yeah. you know, something you made. Would you care to elaborate? And he's like, No. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, when he he somebody was interviewing him about Eraserhead and he said that he thought it was his most spiritual film. Right. And the the interviewer asked, Well, what does that mean? It, you know, can you elaborate on that? And he's no. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but the you should read the book because I mean, I, this is not a pitch for the David Lynch book, but th- there there are a lot of he does elaborate on some things. Okay, which okay. which for, I mean, your money may vary. You may want it, you may not want it, but the, he he goes into detail on some things. Dune was pretty much the worst experience he ever had. I mean, you can guess, you know. Sure, but, sure. Um, well, I have I have the Lynch on Lynch book, which while we were watching season three of Twin Peaks, I was going back and rereading some of that, and and he shed some light on certain things in there. But again, it's it's very intuitive. It's very in the moment. Right. Um, you know, I I love hearing about how. He'll deviate from his original plan because he sees a fan. Mm-hmm. He sees a ceiling fan, and suddenly that's crucial to the story. You know, yep. Um, yep. and yeah, so that's that's amazing to me that that he's as popular as he is and and continues to work in that fashion. I love him so much. You do. I do. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to deviate. Why would you apologize for that? I don't know. Um, so, so coming up, when you when you first started to get into these crazy things we call comics, what what did you actually read? I'm I'm guessing stuff like House of Mystery and Creepy and Eerie, or or am I totally wrong? No, my when I grew up, my dad had a box in the garage. It was this big cardboard box, and it had Easy Rider magazine. <laughs> it had cartoons. <laughs> Um, there were issues of, uh, the Warren magazines, 1984, Vampirella, Famous Monsters was in there. All this stuff was at my disposal from the time I was like four years old. Wow. Um, he had a Frazetta calendar in the garage that I would stare at endlessly. I'd say I was going out to roller skate in the garage and I'm looking at 
I can't remember the name of the painting. I think it's called the deconstructed man. It's the hand with like three naked women hanging from it. Right. Right. I, I would just, my mind was just destroyed by that painting. But, um, yeah. So, and my parents took me to the drive-in constantly. My earliest memories is going to see the incredible melting man at the drive-in. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling really sorry for him because his body's melting and he's clearly in pain and my parents are cracking up because his ear falls off on a tree. <laughs> and that creates this weird dichotomy of like, he's a monster and people are afraid of him, but why are my parents laughing? Um, that kind of stuff re- really changed me, really shaped my way of thinking. Here, this will curl your toes. I have the Incredible Melting Man on Super 8. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. It was, wow. you, you remember when Super 8 was like the thing? Um, I still have some, yeah. 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 When uh, Sound came out, one of the first movies I ever got was The Incredible Melting Man with Sound on Super 8. It doesn't have, obviously, the, the it, it's only a, uh, I think it's a 200-foot uh, reel. But yeah. guess what scene it does include? The, the, the ear? The tube top scene. Oh, the tube top. So nice. you got this, this guy who's falling apart, but he has to take uh-huh. the time to pull this girl's tube top down. Like, <laughs> thank you for including that in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, uh, hopefully it has that, and hopefully, well, it does have that, obviously, but hopefully it has the uh, the fisherman's head going into the waterfall. Yes, it awesome. does. Yep, yep. Fantastic. <laughs> I was a fan of Rick Baker from way, way, way back. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. So that you were you were blessed to have those books at your disposal. I didn't get that exposure until I was like double that age, like eight eight years okay. old and and i had to seek them out they were right there for you which is an amazing advantage sure yeah well i was going to ask you guys this not to to diverge too much but uh, for both of you do you remember obviously i have got to imagine well i know from listening to the show you guys bought comics off the newsstand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um do you remember the first time you went to an actual comic book store yes yes I do. Okay. Um, No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, Like why we we're into this hobby and why comics are so important. Obviously going to the store and seeing this stuff. And, you know, like I said, having that box of comics in the garage was formative for certain, but, going into a comic book store for the first time where it was sort of a temple to the art form. It was like walking into a vault and seeing that this stuff was important, that it wasn't just throw. Like, do you recall that feeling or was it just more comics like you'd see on the, the rack? Yep. Yep. For me, um, there was a newsstand down one block on the corner. Um, we lived right on the, the Westchester Bronx border. So um, actually, the, the, the newsstand was on the Bronx side of the street. In high school, when I met my friends who were also into comics, that, that, was, our, that was our connection, uh, they told me about 
the Dragon's Den on Central Avenue in Yonkers. So we would ride our bikes. It was ride our bikes to to the shop. Uh, this was way before comics only came out on Wednesdays. But mm-hmm. what I remember seeing when I walked in, um, the smell of the paper, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But seeing things that I would never see at the newsstand. Yeah, the newsstand got continuity, which is where I first read Megalith and Armor. But seeing things like from Comico or First mm-hmm. and and experiencing that, but also noticing that something that I just bought a couple weeks ago, the following issue from Marvel or DC was already out because the, LC, the, the, the comic shop got it two weeks before the newsstand. And I remember being fascinated by the, on the Marvel books, the, um, the way the corner boxes were different because of the price and there was no barcode. Mm-hmm. And that was just, so I always looked for whenever I was, whenever I would get comics, whether they were given to me or I bought them, I would always check the secrets for whatever reason in my head is like, Oh, this is the first printing. Cause it's from the LCS. So this is, this is obviously this was sent to the stores. This wasn't, this wasn't on the newsstand. This wasn't bundled up with, with, with rubber bands or had thumb being thumbed through by other people. Um, so I kind of seeked, I, I sought out the ones for, from, from the comic shop, the direct market. Um, but there were things that it, it, it became a, it, it just, it was almost like this, this routine. It, it, um, then eventually the shop moved down the street and, and you know, we still went there until there were other retailers that, that, that started to open up, but it was just the idea of seeing things that I wouldn't normally see and then it blew my mind because then i'd see i found at another stationary store close to the house i found dark Lawn the mystic and i'm like well how is this guy like selling pacific <laughs> comics like this should be at dragons i don't understand why this is at a stationary store but uh i would just it i knew where i could get marvel and dc books but if i wanted anything beyond that i knew i had to go somewhere else and back then the indies were like, you know, a buck and a quarter, a buck fifty, whereas the Marvel books were sixty or seventy-five cents. And and people don't newer readers the past ten years or so, maybe even longer, may not understand that Marvel and DC weren't always the most expensive books on the stand. And uh, it was just there's this whole. It's it. I I don't want to be you know the the in my day guy, but it's just one of those things where I I look at the way things are now, and and I think that that kind of that not necessarily maybe mellows me out to some things because I've seen outrage and I'm like yeah you know you guys really don't understand that right, but it, it's also because of what happened in at Secret Wars or Christ and Earth. Like if we had the internet back then, and, and I, I'm going off on a whole different tangent, but it's just one of those things where the I'm not saying that 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 the the re, that the dragons then was a church, but it definitely broadened my my horizons. It, it let me see things that I wouldn't be able to find at Benny's Candy Hut or Blackman Stationery Store. It was just one of those things where I almost like I'm home, and and it's because even though it, I I can thank 
I can thank relatives for giving me a subscription to Amazing Spider-Man. I can thank um, my father for making sure whenever he would bring the newspaper home that I read the comic strips. Um, I can thank my aunt who her first her first law practice, her partner, his mother would go to the flea markets every weekend and give my aunt a huge bag of comics. And whenever I'd see my aunt every couple of weeks, she had this massive stack of comics. And and that's when I fell in love with, you know, the old world's finest, the old DC dollar books, judo master, you know, and little things like that, that eventually DC absorbed. And I, I just, I, so there was no really direct path. I just absorbed everything that was kind of thrown at me, but, but it was, it was the, going into that actual first comic shop that that kind of um i guess cemented my love for for the hobby sure yeah matthew you done lit a fire under dap seriously man <laughs> you did let me start it on that man i'll that's a whole other episode <laughs> yeah i i was lucky in in a similar way um as matthew where you had the box of of warns available to you from a young age i had uh a newsstand that it was much more than a newsstand. It was a convenience store before there were such things. Um, the, the, the guy's name was King Joe. I, I, we, we all called him King Joe and it was King Joe's newsstand. Obviously he had a real name. Um, but he sold cigars and matchbox cars and batteries and mm, plastic models and tasty cakes um, and obviously periodicals. He had birthday cards. Like if you needed something back in the early seventies, King Joe's was the place you went for it. They, mm-hmm. they, he would have it, but he would have it at a semi exorbitant price, hmm. you know? So yeah. he, he sold comics and what he would do is instead of when the, the shelf life or the spinner rack life of these comics would lapse, you are, you were supposed to send them back. Mm-hmm. For credit, uh, strip the covers, send them back. Joe would never send them back. He would he would stack them in boxes. Uh, this is a man who made a fortune selling water. <laughs> now we're we're talking like early seventies laughing stock because he thinks he's going to get rich selling water. We're like, who would buy water? You mm-hmm. you turn on your tap and then there's. You know, you have water, but this, this guy would, he bought land that had a spring, the, the end result of a spring on it. And he just bottled all the water and we laughed, but now he's, well, he's, he's in his late eighties now, but he's stupid rich. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, he, he would save the books and he knew because this newsstand was at the end of my paper route. And I would take all of the money I made selling grit and and buy comics. He knew that I loved comics, and then I wanted to go to to I, I wanted a career in art. So he played up to to that. He also knew my family, and he would sell me those books that he never sent back for twenty comics for a dollar. Wow! And he didn't care about the cover price. Like I got DC hundred page giants. Um, you know, annuals, uh, the Captain Canuck, Canuck stuff was in there. Like, it was just anything that he had left over that I didn't have. He sold it to me 20 for a buck. And so I, 
amassed a pretty big collection quickly. And then when the, the, the comic shop started to, to pop up, I always compared them to King Joe. And they, the only edge that the comic shops had on King Joe was there was an element of fandom in the comic shops that he didn't have being a newsstand like rockets blast and the comic collector um cbg uh you know all of the stuff alter ego all of the stuff that opened up this amazing vista of other dudes and dudettes that were like me who actually cared about these things you got that a little bit from the letters pages but Mm -hmm. there was nothing to compare with reading an issue of Rockets Blast in, in the Comic Collector, because it was just this these well well written, intelligent, knowledgeable, just like Don Rosa. Mm-hmm. When I when I first read an Information Please column, I'm like, holy crap, this guy takes comics seriously. Well, I kind of do, but not like this. Maybe yeah. I should, you know, maybe I should pay more attention. Um, but that was the one thing about the shops was the fandom element that even to this day, that is pretty much my favorite part of comics next to the actual art is the, those old fanzines and the, the, the trade pay periodicals and stuff. I just, I, I can't walk away. Daps the same way. If, if we find an issue of amazing heroes that we don't have, it's coming home with us. Yep. Right. Yeah. The uh, the other thing that um, another difference between the comic shop and the candy hut is the comic shop didn't mind if I asked them to hold a couple things because I'd be coming back for it. Uh, when Benny realized I wasn't able to afford everything that he was holding onto me, he wasn't really all that happy with me. Yeah. So. Um, and absolutely, you know, hey, I, I get it. I, it, my eyes were bringing my stomach. I, I, you know, I, I made sure that, you know, I would buy the issues of Hex, but I wouldn't be able to, you know, get everything that I asked him to put off to the side. And realizing now that, you know, it was a newsstand, he could strip the covers off and, and still get his money back. But it, it was one, I, I, there was, there was definitely a feeling of guilt where it's like, you know, I, whether he was, looking forward to my 60 cents an mm. issue or you know he just he, he could have used that space for more trading cards or you know backwood cigars i don't know but it, it's just one of those things where i um i realized about the the concept of and it, this is kind of before pull lists really but you could kind of um as long as you were regular and the comic shop knew you'd be coming back, uh, especially since you wanted to see what was on their wall because you wanted to know, okay, I have, I have that issue of green lantern, green arrow. I have that issue of amazing Spider-Man. I, I have that issue of Spider-Man versus Wolverine. So it's, it's like what's on their wall. What do I have in my collection? So you're always going back to the comic shop. And, uh, if they're holding on to a couple of things for you, they, they, I looked at it as that, that was their business. I mean, yeah, I don't want to get it. I don't want anybody holding on to crap for too long and, and even today i know you'll hear comic shops or customers who you know have a huge box waiting for them in the back of the store that they have to go clear out or they can't get any more they, they can't pre-order the new books until they get rid of the crap that the place is holding on to them so it's 
but yeah, there, there's definitely. I, I all, like all mainstream comics should be returnable. I don't disagree. That would alleviate a lot of that bullshit that these uh, comic shop owners have to go through when you have Jimmy who has 200 issues in a box that he says he's going to pay for, and he never gets around to it. I mean, I, I think the publisher should shoulder that that responsibility, not these guys who are just trying to make rent. You know? Yeah. I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah. On on the mainstream stuff. Now, on stuff like Kanko or, or those are the guys that are just struggling to to get this work out. And you know what I mean? And and they're working other jobs. This is just um a, a dream. So yeah, they don't have the resources that these Warner Brothers and, and, and now Disney has. So yeah, I don't I don't think I think it should be split. But that's I wonder if, if things if things just changed in the nineties when because I worked at a comic book store from eighty nine to ninety three and at that time my boss was hoarding first issues. Mm-hmm. So he he'd fill people's um pull lists and maybe put a couple out on the shelf that first day, but he'd hold on to the rest and then, you know, mark it up five hundred percent or more. And I wonder if the comic companies kind of caught wind of that and like, well, if that's what you want to do, then go for it. But, you know, don't expect us to take it back if they don't sell. Um, right. Yeah, I do. That, that seems to be um, a pretty standard practice. I've uh, gone to a, a, a number of comic shops where the proprietors would do that. They mm-hmm. would they would sit on especially during the Valiant era. Forget yep. it. Yeah, that was yeah. My boss would get a phone call from some other shop, and he'd tell me, "Okay, pull all the Harbinger number ones." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they'd, yep. they'd go in the back, and then miraculously, we'd have them again for twenty bucks. Well, there was a there was a time when it it ceased to be the the art became commerce. And mm-hmm. and and it was not a good period for comics. I mean, we have all we've all read and and heard the the horror stories, um, the implosion and the, the the almost the death of the industry after the black and white boom. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just people just trying to make money on pieces of paper, and it's like they lost sight of the 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 true purpose of the medium is 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 artistic creation, not commerce but you can't split it in this country that's what america is about you know it's capitalism so i don't know it's 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 a difficult uh, line to walk but and i'm i say we're still seeing it today sure well it's i remember when after wizard and or after wizard got their hold on on things I remember people, it was weird. I mean, maybe people kind of talked about this in in closed circles, but maybe not online once once the internet started becoming a thing for message boards and things like that. But I remember early on, it's like, this is what Overstreet says this issue of Uncanny X-Men is worth. But the retailer is only offering me this much for it and it took forever for people to get it through their heads that the retailer still has to make a profit so oh, so God. it doesn't matter that they're that, that they're only willing to buy it from you for eight bucks they still if they want to sell it for 15 they still need to make sure 
I can't that, tell you how many times I had to explain that to people. I bet. <laughs> I absolutely bet. They do it every episode of American Pickers. Oh, do oh, they? Oh, God, yeah. Jeez. Every episode. Yep. 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 Yeah, I'm, I, I'm obsessed with that show for that very reason, just because I lived it. Like that whole conversation of, or I'd get, hey, I got Action Comics number one. Like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a treasury reprint. Right. Uh-huh. And you flip through the indicia and you're like, 1979, buddy. Do you think that's when they published Action Comics number one? Just before we move on uh, from American Pickers, do you think Frank is like super weird? I, I think there's something really strange going on with Frank. Like yeah. how how he's so awkward in social situations and then... Did you see the episode where he had the funeral for the cat? Yes. Yeah. I just. Where I, it's like that celebration with like a mariachi <laughs> band or something. Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I want to just give him a hug, but I'm also very afraid of him because he just seems like there's, there's a, a part of Frank that we will never see. And after Frank, unfortunately, after he passes, it's all going to come out and we're not going to be pleased at, well, what, at what we find. I remember the episode that they put on a, a mini like flea market for kids to sell antiques. And, and I realized like I'm blowing my reputation here by talking about the fact that I watch American Pickers, but um, whatever reputation I have. Frank sees a Paul Stanley standee, like this six foot tall cardboard Paul Stanley. And he's in love. Like he has to have this yep. thing. Yep. And he pays the kids some ridiculous amount of money for this. And I'm sure it was partly for the show, like go buy something and help the kids out. But he seemed genuinely into Paul Stanley, which if you're going to be into any KISS member, that's kind of not the one to be into. <laughs> he, he seemed very much into that. Um, so that made me question his uh, his taste level and sanity a little bit, for sure. True. True. And have you ever heard him when he's talking about the various dates that he's gone on? Yes. It, it's just, yeah. it's it's very, it, it makes me squirm. It, I, I just get the feeling that there's something going on with him that is is going to be very surprising, I think. But uh, did you see the one where he bought the Kiss garbage can? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> but but anyway, to, to get back onto Overstreet, the thing that I love Overstreet and I also hate it because I I love the the fandom aspect of it that you can relive, you can go back and and read what was hot in the old Overstreet price guides and you know they're little time capsules of the various eras in in collecting, but Whenever you go to a flea market and someone has comics, you can rest assured when the guide comes out, they go straight to the the mint column. Mm-hmm. Of course, and, yeah. and their their books are. I mean, it's it's hard for a, a person that frequents flea markets to keep their books mint because mm-hmm. they're lugging them in and out of the van every week. Um, people are thumbing through them every week. These books are not mint, fella. I don't. I, I hesitate to think they were even mint at one time, but yet, bang! It goes right to that last column, like, and then it just, it just, I just have to pull away. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a lot. We have an antique mall with various dealers have a little booth set up, and they'll be selling 
you know, Silver Age books, and it's exactly that. Exactly what you said. They're going for the mint price. Some of these books, they're wrapped in saran wrap yep. staples. Yep. You know, <laughs> clearly they're not in the best of shape, but yeah. Lately, I've been taking a step back and just looking at the practice of, of collecting comics, and we do a lot of stupid things. And and we we spend a lot of a, a silly amount of money on comics, and I'm a lot of a part of me wonders whether it's just out of habit. Mm-hmm. Is there any comic out there from the big two that's worth four dollars? Seriously, and yet here we are every month just dropping the 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 fat stacks, as Jason likes to say, on these comics, and it's just. I've luckily been able to break myself of that. I can't. I, I, it, post New 52, after all that, I was like, I'm done. I can't. I can't go in every Wednesday and you know pick up five to ten books. I, I just can't do it. I'd much rather go through a dollar bin and you know buy older stuff. And these books are going to be in dollar bins in 10 years anyway, you know, not to bad mouth anything. I'm just saying the way they're produced and, and the amount of books that are out there, it's not about the quality of the work itself, but as a product, they're just not worth that. And I sell a $5 book, but you know, it's, I, I, yeah, I understand that. But your book to me at least is worth that $5. Right. I just can't with my, how small my print runs are. I mean, I can't really go any less than that. I don't want to sell it for $5, honestly, but I just can't. That's the only way I can make a little bit of profit on it. Right. So what I've been doing is with every new previews order, I'm, I'm pairing, I'm getting rid of the singles and I'm just focusing on trades. I think that's the first step in, in pulling out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you heard, you were there at Heroes. You saw what we, what Dap and I bought for basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Like we could do that once a year and and give ourselves enough to read until the we come back. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. It, it especially just, since there were, I mean, there there were recent books in in the fifty cent sure bin. So it's not and and I get it. You know, it's it, if it's new and you're not sure if it's going to you know be around or. There's going to be any left. I plus, you know, wanting to that is the gratification of wanting to read it when it comes out. Um, that's also why you know I, I understand why I that that's one way I view digital versions being the same price as their physical copies on day one because you're not paying for ads and you're able to read it right there. Wednesday morning over cereal without having to go to the comic shop. So, you know, all of that is you pay for that premium there, but it's if, if I, I basically self trade weight anyway, I have issues of, uh, of, well, the first two issues of, of the new Dr. Strange. I have, uh, the girl who handcuffed to Dina. I have, you know, issues of the damned that I haven't read yet. And it, it's, it's been going on for like seven, eight, nine months so why i don't need to bust my hump to to make sure i get it when they're new i can roll the dice and try to get it at a con and either it's going to be cover price or cheaper you know anything that i think 
anything that I buy usually isn't something that that is going to be sought after and and no one it, it's not really a limited print run what, what what I'm buying month to month so I can I can take a chance and see if it's going to be at New York or Heroes or C2E2 or, or wherever we go. Yeah, the only time I'll buy digital books is if you or Jason want to talk about something and I right. I, I don't have it. it yeah. uh, you know, to me, buying a digital book is throwing money away. I know. I, I, and I don't feel like I get anything for my money. And I, absolutely. And I, and I absolutely get that. And, and I, I do both because, you know, again, for me, as long as I can read the story, I don't, I don't need to have, there are some things I don't need to own every copy of. Yeah. I read, I read the Avengers storyline and now I opened up the DC box that came today. And now I have a pretty swank hardcover of no surrender sitting next to me so now i have that physical copy i didn't have to spend you got your money box before on... me amazing right that's insane that is insane good for you um but it, it's one of those things where um you know yeah so there are some things that i don't really need physical copies of i mean right. the new venom series is really cool but i've never I've been over Venom for a while, and and I don't really need those issues cluttering up space on. Yeah, on but my that desk, so. I, I'm not. I don't want to give Stegman a hard on, but that that old Venom, this new Venom looks much better than that old Venom. Sure, it does. But so yeah. let's swing it back to Matthew. So the yep. eventual trade mm-hmm. of of Cancor, Calamity of Challenge. Any plans on making it? Um, larger i'm thinking maybe treasury size would be awesome it would probably put you in it would put you in the poorhouse but man i just think it's the the material demands to be nice and big and bold it does oh yeah i would love to do that i love the treasury size stuff um i the the trade i kind of made a handshake deal at at um Heroes, so I feel like I could talk about it, but I'm working with Ad House on doing the trade. Amazing. And a lot that of their books are smaller. Like if you look at the Street Angel book and the Aphrodisiac, I feel like those are slightly smaller than comic size. And Aphrodisiac heard, is, but Russian Olive to Red King kind of isn't. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I've talked to retailers who are like, we hate putting larger books on the shelves. There's no place to put them. And I know publishers think about that kind of stuff. So as much as I'd love to do that, I don't know how how it would affect sales. Um, it's a hard thing to say because as, as somebody who's been self-publishing for the past five years, I've had complete control over what the books look like. And there's a lot to self-publishing I, I am done with. I don't want to do anymore. But I guess if Ed Pisker can put out treasury size books... The, there is a market for it and people will, I mean that book is ever, the hip hop family tree books are everywhere the X-Men grand design books it's not like shops aren't ordering them so right yeah yeah it could work and and Chris is good people I mean he genuinely cares about merging format with function like uh, if Yes, they do have a lot of smaller books, but I mean, he he 
lets the the material dictate, I think, the format a lot. So I yeah. I, I would love – I can't wait to see what's eventually going to come out of that. Yeah, me too. I Chris puts out such amazing – packaging just beautiful books that you want to pick up and read regardless of the subject matter his design sense and his choice of paper stocks and embossed covers and just the idea of working with him has been in the back of my head for a long time and we see each other at conventions and and i always you know i i feel like am i worthy to be under that umbrella but i you know i hope so um because I would love to have a, a, a beautiful looking book. I, I do know that in terms of page count, there will be more pages, basically another issue, essentially. So right now it's 84 pages. There'll be another 20. And then I may reprint the previous book, the Van Halen versus the Clash in there as well. Um, but it's it, we've got a while before it comes out. So I've got plenty of time to to figure out what's going to go in it. How long of a time frame are we talking? Well, I had originally hoped to have it debut at New York Comic Con in 2019. Um, But Chris's schedule is pretty full, so he doesn't think that's likely. And I'll be doing other stuff in between now and then. I've got a few things going on that... Well, good. Can't wait to see that. Just listening to the Heroes wrap-up. Uh, as always, uh, Heroes Con wrap up is one of the most entertaining episodes. Thanks for that. Uh, I do, I'm feeling a little, uh, off about a couple of the statements given, uh, regarding artists and kindliness and, uh, your experience with the artist. I think there's a really recent episode in which Two basic premises were offered emphatically. One, the artist owes you nothing. You pay your money, you get your art, that's it. was said over and over again. Uh, also, that everyone on the show was to- in total agreement. The artist can take as long as they need. In every case, as long as it adds up to the best art they can produce. If they need time... You would all rather have them take the time, as much time as they need, in order to produce that set work of art. But I think it's a little bit different when it's a personal thing, it seems like. Um, I'm not sure how ordering a pre-order from a solicitation on a monthly book uh, and paying for that is different. Maybe it's just how much money you're paying than uh, a commission piece of art. But I think if you're buying from an artist with a reputation for being late, you kind of have to sort of expect that and be okay with it, right? I mean, under the edicts, you know, issued from the 11 o'clock comics crew, it would seem that it's one of those cases when everything's a little bit different when it's personal. And people have a personal reaction to art, and they're fan experience. I just think it's worth noting that while these situations are not exactly the same, I think they have a lot in common and maybe, you know, different when the shoe's on the other foot. 
Maybe it's all kind of similar. Just an observation. Really do enjoy the show. And uh, I'm trying to process that too. So we're all trying to consume and enjoy art, and your show is included in that. So, again, thanks. Take care. Bye. So what are you reading and enjoying today? Uh, at this very moment, um, what did I get recently? I finally tracked down Batman Annual Number 2 with the Lee Weeks art. I've been looking for that for a long time and just have been pouring over that. Um, Lee, I, Lee's pretty amazing. Oh, my God, yeah. There's, yeah, he's there's always a, been, a very old soul in that body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, just rock solid. The guy's rock solid. It's frustrating looking at his artwork. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't know how effortless it is for him. I, I imagine it's not because he doesn't work very frequently, it doesn't seem like. Um, so, But you can tell. I mean, there's passion in every single panel. Yeah, it's like uh, I get an an air of Toth out of Weeks' stuff. I mean, Toth sure. mixed with Kubert. He he has yep. a, a a very um, emotional line, but the the composition, I mean, he nails the composition every panel. Mm-hmm. He's in the the storytelling is so super solid, like you said. Well, actually, the the book that I just got that has taken up most of my time as I finally tracked down the artist edition of born again. Oh <laughs> my man. You talk about uh, like every panel is perfection. I, I can't, I, I, it's, when did that book come out? 30 years ago? 1980. Was it uh 85, 86? So yeah, 80, I think 86. It's still every time I look at it, it just destroys my brain. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand how a human being drew that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that good. You're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> you wish you could say that with a straight face. I know. It's, seriously, I, I think I it's it's pretty much the closest Marvel has to an evergreen. I, I yeah. uh, it's it's one of those. I this is nothing new to long time listeners. It's 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 pretty much a story that you could give to anyone whether they're a daredevil fan or not and it's still it's still a complete story it's it's mm-hmm. it's ups and downs and it's it it's it's one man being torn down building himself back up and and against one one force doing that to him and you know everything miller is smart enough where that first page when we see karen in the shadows telling her story and that's that's really all you need to know it's it just you don't need to be hit over the head with caption boxes or or uh oh hot entries to to there's no recap page where letting you know who all these players are it plays out as the story is told and and the whole the 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 splash pages where you see matt in his satin sheets in bed at the beginning and then in cardboard boxes in an alleyway and it's just 
it's it's so hard at times to just sit and look at because as a Kelly, whether whether it's Matt at his at his best and his highest or at his most grungiest, dirtiest low, I yeah, I wish I could tap into whatever the hell Mazzucchelli had going on back. Even and even today, I mean, late recently with the Steerus Polyp and things like that. But whatever he was channeling back then is just amazing. Oh, he he his thought process is above and beyond what comics in that era almost like they almost didn't deserve that level of thought. I would uh, so agree with that. I think that he, you know, he looked at what Frank Miller was was offering him and said, "This is going to be." I mean, I don't know if anybody thinks that something's their magnum opus while they are working on it, mm-hmm. but I, I, I know that that was important to him to make it because you can see the difference between. I mean, he'd been doing Daredevil for a good. What fifteen, sixteen issues it's, prior to that with Denny O'Neill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the change from those issues to this one, and I think he he didn't start inking himself until no. He had he had uh, Danny Belandi for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is when he kind of started inking himself, maybe an issue or two beforehand. But yeah, yeah th- this this was all him for this. I think the one with the vulture was one of the first ones that he inked. And you look at the inks in this thing, and they're sloppy as hell. Like it's unbelievable, just the marks that he made. You're like, how? It's so assured, and so simple, but just perfection. And you, you know, Vince, you're talking about Alex Toth. Like the quote that I think about a lot when I'm drawing and, and thinking about Alex Toth is, he says, "Keep it simple so that you don't have to cheat." And the cartooning is simple, not in a dumbed down way but it i almost wish the artist edition didn't have word balloons so that you could just read it as pure cartooning um and i understand i mean that it was put on the page at the time but um i mean you can read that book without any dialogue at all and it still makes you get the story that when ben yurik gets that phone call oh going on around him and the it's getting closer to his face and his body's kind of shrinking. Yes, all hunched up. Yeah. That scene still is just incredible to me. Or even I mean the the emotion in, in Foggy's face whenever he has to realize something. It's you're right. It it's just and and Kinkman is just nothing but this face of not just being so assured, but but furious or or any time you you know when nuke is asking for a red it's just the, the way miller and and Mazzucchelli are definitely a an all-time great creative team for me they're they're up there with any others you can ramble off but um i i don't i don't know you know it's i mean it, it's i look at born again and it's i i realize that frank miller wrote that and he wrote the stories he drew and that that Klaus ended up illustrating and but but there are parts of it where I'll read Born Again and it and it just I view it it stands on its own where it's almost like I don't almost I almost don't recognize that it's the same guy who wrote the Electra saga and and everything leading up to that and against the Punisher and 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 Wolverine and and it's it's just I, I 
it is it is so high above most I, I will definitely say most mainstream big two stories for me, but but even with some of the it, it is absolutely one of the all time greatest comic book stories as far as I'm concerned. So it's it's just it, it's very hard for me to to well, I don't want to say it's hard for me to hear any criticisms about it because I don't think there are any, but there are just certain things where it's it's yeah I, I you I, it, it's weird. I was joking with Vince before, and I'm like, this is pretty much going to be. I mean, it, as long as Vince gets to talk about Canker, it's probably <laughs> going to be the Vince and Matthew show, and I'll just kind of like you know peep in from time to time. But I already know that it's just like this motherfucker's mentioned LCSs and he's mentioned <laughs> Born Again, and I'm sure I'll come back around and talk about something with Matthew at some point. But I'm. See? Well, I Thank got a you. big stack of amazing heroes here. I thought we could go through page by page <laughs> if you want. But is it the big, the big size magazine or the smaller comic book size? Oh, the small, yeah. Oh, okay. Just poser. <laughs> so, did you well, ever? You guys, you guys, I'm sorry. You guys are both uh, tomorrow's readers, right? Draw and back issue and all that. Back yep. issue, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry, Vince. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. Uh, did you ever make it to the Psychotronic store? Before it closed? No. no, I had like three or four people tell me about that at uh, Heroes. And um, it's not, he's not in New York or Cleveland, right? He's, this is some, it was like in the South, I thought. Well, I'm talking about the, the original Psychotronic store in New York. Oh, no, no. Oh, boy. Yeah, I was there once. Okay. I, I did manage to get there. And it wasn't, you know, you, you hear things. Um, romanticizing what it was and it was the mecca it it, it wasn't all that mm-hmm. it, it was this little hole in the wall um but just to be able to talk to him there yeah it, it was pretty awesome and sure. um like you can get the magazine and he had assorted um film related periodicals and books not a whole lot you know um yeah. and and mia had her little boutique with their mermaids or whatever it was, <laughs> but yeah. I I I I talked to him for about forty five minutes, and it was I, I think I'll never forget it. So I mean, there's that right, but sure. um, the the Psychotronic magazine, and again, getting back to Canker number four, how you mentioned specifically wanting to read Psychotronic, I cannot overemphasize just how important that magazine was. To, to me, and I'm, I'm sure you, in, oh, yeah. in that he covered everything that I wanted to actually waste my time watching. Sure. At a, at a period when most of the things that everybody else was watching were boring as hell. Uh-huh. Like, it, yeah. it, was, it was early 90s. I didn't plug into any movies from that period unless they were B or C movies. You know, yeah. and just the whole fetish with the Ramones and Papa Uma Mao and, and mm-hmm. just the, right, the whole um, uh, car culture, goth chick. It, it, that's that's even boiling it down too much. I mean, he well, and that, that era, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, when you had something weird starting to put stuff out. Right. And when you look at Psychotronic and you look at some of the the stuff they were advertising. The one thing that, that stuck out to me was Dan Klaus was so in the fabric of all of that. Mm-hmm. Like Dan yeah. Klaus was able to personify that culture. 
going and finding the seedy parts of 50s and 60s culture that had sort of been forgotten. And, you know, Dan Klaus is probably the most psychotronic comic book artist there is. I mean, some people might argue like J.D. King or somebody, but or Drew Friedman, but I think Klaus... I, and I say this because I bought the Psychotronic Video Guide, the first one, at the same time I bought the first three issues of Eight Ball. Same, same. And it just, that was it. That was my life from that point on. I was just like, okay, I want to draw comics and I want to watch every single movie listed in this book. I would actually circle um, entries in the Psychotronic Guide. The ones, the ones I've seen, I, I circle them. I, I have it on the shelf and there's pages where there's just a shit ton of circles and then there's some pages obviously that are blank yeah i don't think we could go our entire lives and and complete that assignment no no uh, when you think about the amount of video companies that were out at that time you know the ones i mainly ordered from were sinister cinema and something weird but there were dozens of others and i know a lot of the reviews in the magazine would just have a phone number at the end like call this person and you can buy this movie from them. <laughs> you know, and I I didn't have the balls to pick up a phone and, and talk to somebody, but um, yeah, I I re I remember driving for like a good two year period, and I was driving to video stores anyways. But I was on the hunt for Blood Freak after reading the review in Psychotronic, the Brad Gritner movie with the turkey monster, right. I had to see that movie. I I I was on a mission to find that movie. And every video store I went into, I if it wasn't on the shelf, I asked them, "Do you have this movie?" And I finally found a place in my old hometown of Arvada. It was like right down the street from my parents. They had two copies of it, one on Regal and one on another label. I can't remember. And I asked them, "Like, will you sell me one of these?" Like, you have two copies. I'm like, no, we don't. I can sell them. So I at least rented it. I. I paid to buy a membership at this video store just to rent that movie. Um, but that was my life at the time, just obsessively tracking this stuff down and doing exactly what you did. I'd circle all the ones I wanted to see, you know, check them off as I got to see them. Yeah. Do you have a digital copy of Blood Freak? I have the Something Weird image disc, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I I was gonna queue one up right here on my desktop and send it to you. <laughs> no, yeah, I still have that. I still have that. Yeah, Brad Gritner, knowing that he made uh, was a nudist, just adds another layer <laughs> to that whole thing. But I mean, it, it was a good time, right? And it, it's funny that you mention um, Dan Klaus being the the preeminent psychotronic artist because when I first saw. Velvet Glove, the the first chapter of Velvet Glove, I thought, man, this looks like a racer head. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't really. No. It, it it feels like a racer head, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't look like it at all. It's not nearly as, as dark. But what, what Klaus did, he, Klaus, uh, he, he captured that, is there a word for it? Um that just feeling of dread and unease. Yeah, you're unsettled. Right, right. You're seeing, yeah. But it, it, as far as flat-out psychotronic artists, you know, when I think psychotronic, I think Big Daddy Roth, 
um, sure. like J.D. King and stuff. But Jan, uh, um, Dan Klaus, yeah, now that you mention it, he, I think he does pretty much. Well, he, was, he was on all these other, you know, he was in, there was a book called CAD about 50s men's culture mm-hmm. that he did artwork for that. Um, he did the artwork for the Las Vegas Grind vinyl uh, releases, a lot of those. Um, His work for yeah, Crack, just, magazine. Crack Magazine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what was it, The Ugly Family? The Ugly Is that what Family, they were yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uncle yeah. Grandpa? It's a good one. Now, um, you, you pegged him in my brain now. Well, Lloyd Llewellyn. I mean, right, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I don't think it gets any more psychotronic than that. No. Well, and the thing about Dan Klaus too, and and I always and, and I'm if I'm saying the name wrong, I've always said Klaus, and I know some people said Close, and I think no. he even says that in the comic. Um, I just love the fact that he was doing a one man anthology, and he drew every story in a different style. It was still him, but sometimes he had big fat brush strokes. Other times he did cross hatching. Sometimes it was painted. That was a huge influence on me. Like you can do that. You don't have to just draw in one style. You can right. make right. it into whatever you want. That was amazing to me. Do you think Klaus was molested by his own uh, success? He's definitely not the same artist he used to be. I think that he. It's funny you say that. I I used to be on the Comics Journal message board, and one time I questioned. Klaus's enthusiasm for comics and did it in a very bumbling, poorly worded way. And people called me out on it, rightfully so. But I, I wondered that same thing was like, you know, once they started making movies, did he lose the passion or the, the, the fire? But I think it was just getting old. And I think he, he, he did everything that he wanted to do with those first uh, I mean, how many issues of 8-Ball were there, 20, 22 total? Mm, I don't know. I think, yeah. Okay, I'll yeah. go with that. I don't remember exactly how many, but there, it's it's in the 20s. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like he, that was it. I mean, that's what all he needed to do. And Death Ray is good. Um, I, I liked Ice Haven. I, I wasn't blown away by um, Patience. I really didn't like Wilson, but um, that may just be me. You know, I, I'm a different age than he is, and I have different sensibilities. So, I may come around to those books at some point. Right. Um, see, I identify him with Velvet Glove. Mm-hmm. Ghost World bores me to tears. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it's it's pure purely from an aesthetic. Uh, perspective it is a beautiful piece of work mm-hmm. i think and i i completely understand what he was trying to do it it's a good work it's just that it doesn't speak at all to me yeah. uh, I, it, it was written uh when i read it i was out of the age bracket that he yeah. that he was speaking to and um whereas you have velvet glove which i think is timeless it's sure. it's just fucking weird, you know, and it's it, you it creeps out uh, age eight to eighty, right? It's, it, it's, yeah. it's it the 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 uh, impetus for Velvet Glove is far different than Ghost World. 
Oh, definitely. I think Ghost World was sort of his attempt at doing a Maggie and Hopi type story. Yeah. I think that was him doing a little Love and Rockets, which is great. And I can understand him wanting to do that. I mean, you go from doing Needle Dick the Bugfucker to <laughs> Sensual Santa, <laughs> where you're just like, okay, I've kind of got all the juvenile stuff out of my system. I want to write stories about real people. Um, and he still had weird stuff in there. You know, they're they're sitting in the diner across from the Satanists and all that, but I, I wanted to ask David: Did you ever end up reading Dan Pussy, the Dan Klaus book about the the artist? No, not yet. Oh, Still yeah. haven't. Yeah, you've got to read it. I know. You would love it. It's seriously. It's it's all about the era of comics that we were reading, but behind the scenes stuff. There's a Stan Lee analog in there. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, you you need to check that out. I will order it. Yeah, it's good stuff. I think Stan Lee is the easiest character to write, basically because he the character he created is just so ingrained in in our our brains. Mm-hmm. The the bullpen bulletins. That's why David and I called what we did bullpen bulletins because we we can't get away from it. It it was sure. there when we were kids, and it's it, we still fondly remember it. And and he was the spokesperson for that. He was the ringleader. Uh, the the carnival barker uh there's a a huge part of me and everybody knows that i i really dislike stan but i gotta give the guy a hug for being there for me when i was a kid oh yeah yeah and he you know i i think you guys have both read the marvel the untold story um yeah that that book really gave me some insight into what stanley was all about i think that i think he had an appreciation for comics, but he understood the value of those characters beyond that way before anybody else did. And he was pushing for toys and cartoons and all that stuff from the get go. And I don't blame him. You know, I mean, he, of course you're going to look at all this stuff and be like, guy, we, this is a t-shirt. This is a pillowcase. This is, you know, and and for him to sort of create this persona around that made total sense because that, that I always think of him more in the seventies because his face was all over the Marvel books in the seventies that I think Murray Severin did a caricature of him that seemed yeah. to pop up all over the place. Um, so he he was a comic book character to me, you know, at that point. I think same way like Fred Hembeck was. <laughs> yep. You know, there's an unsung hero of the Marvel era is Marie Severin. Yes. Yeah. I adore her work. And yeah, yeah John was phenomenal, but I think Marie Marie was amazing in her own right. Oh, sure. Not only was she a great colorist, but cartoonist. Mm-hmm. She could hold her own with the big boys. I think you guys talked about it. There was a, I can't remember what comic it was in. It may have been in Foom. But I, I saw it in a like a back issue magazine. Um, she did a drawing of a bullpen, like an aerial view, and showed like where everybody sat. Yep. I think it was her. Uh, but just that, like the, the ability to do that, she did a great illustration of Stanley turning into the thing. Um, I don't even think she was credited for it. Again, it's something. But she was given all those projects that just most people probably throw away, but she did a phenomenal job. 
And if you go back to Not Brand Eck, mm-hmm. that was her showcase. I mean, she was all over that thing. Mm-hmm. But it was a time period when women didn't really get, you know, a whole lot of credit. But I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's very surprising that she did get the credit that she received because, you know, it was a boys' club. It's still a boys' club. Yeah, I think much more so at DC. Marvel seemed to be a little more diverse, but um, yeah, it, it absolutely was. Do we want to talk about that thing that we sort of kind of read? <laughs> if I mean, I hate. Yeah, I mean, I've. It's been, it's been a long week. We did our book of the month, the previous episode last week, uh, and it kind of caused Vince to think about zero hour and, and where uh, things may have led to the events from the Legion volume one by Abnett landing events. I was humbled. Volume two, volume two was in my box today. I better get mine, but yes. no, no, you're right. I was humbled because there is a ton of DC continuity, like I said, that I I forgot right. or I viewed through rose-colored glasses and I, I misremembered a lot of it yep. um, or just stuff that I just flat out didn't read. So when whenever these, these big, in quotes, these big Legion moments come along, they're always in contrast with the big moments in the DC universe, Crisis on Infinite Earths is a big one. Um, and and there's a lot of import placed on Zero Hour. Yes. And after reading Zero Hour, which was written by Dan Jurgens, with art by Jurgens and Jerry Ordway, color art by Gregory Wright, um, having digested Zero Hour, it's not that good. See, the thing <laughs> is, the first thing I wrote down with zero hour base. I don't know why, but I was reading zero. I was reading the main mini and then realized I need to read some tie-ins. But what I, the first thing I wrote down in regards to zero hour events are not evergreens. You cannot give zero hour to anybody and say, or even Christ's on infinite earth. No, you cannot can't. give this to somebody and say, here, read this. This is what I love about DC Comics. Because there, there's you only one someone away and they will never read another comic again. Exactly. There's only one evergreen event in my estimation in the history of the big two. There's only one book that is an event that you can give to somebody and they'll enjoy it. Jason's Secret gonna, Wars. Secret Wars. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It, the premise is so simple. Yeah, it's it's a big blockbuster popcorn yeah, summer flick yeah. that absolutely without but a doubt can you give crisis to the average joe no get the Same heck out of here right and legends is a simple six issue series but it but but again legends is another is another piece that is is designed to set up what's coming next in this case the justice league or the new shazam or so so yeah there's there's zero hour is now i was i wasn't reading the legion books at the time of zero hour i because uh, i i stopped fairly after the uh the soon after um legionnaires started uh but i was reading 
Shadow with a Bat. I was reading. Who wasn't? Um, true. I, I, I wasn't reading Green Lantern because of who was Green Lantern at the time. I wasn't really reading The Flash. I stopped reading Team Titans really shortly after the crossover that, that introduced them to the DC Universe. And I was reminded reading the crossover of Team Titans that Zero Hour is part of. And it is so bad. And it is such a mess. But I read a lot of the tie-ins to zero hour i haven't read all of the zero issues and and yes i remember that dr fate and starman sprung out from it but the it is it is such the main series itself but uh, and of course the tie-ins but the main zero hour is such a 90s comic book and, and there are some parts where it is painful to read the dialogue coming out of some of these characters heads but i i will say and I hope you guys will agree with me. Jurgens and Ordway make a phenomenal. They, they make are, a great team. Oh, yeah. Fantastic together. Yes. Yep. The the very first uh, couple pages in issue four, when the time trapper oh. gets quote killed, those are yeah. gorgeous pages. They really are. Right. But as an event, and and when Zero R was coming out, we weren't we didn't have the event fatigue yet. It, it th- this is the event infancy because you know what's the the laundry list of events up to zero hour maybe six titles right i mean we don't have to go through them but we we weren't bombarded by an event every three to six months as we are now um but i think the goal with zero hour is resoundingly clear it's not so much a work of fiction as it is a group of creative people conducting house cleaning. The, 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 the goal is to fix all the shit that they broke. I mean, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's a, it's a work of fiction. It, it's, it's created by um, writers and artists and it's beautiful and it, and it, and it works on that level. But the main thrust of, zero hour is to fix what they broke and and that's apparent from the first page we done fucked up with all this continuity crap we we tried to fix the many different earths with crisis now we got to try and fix the many different versions of all these characters with zero hour and the poster child for zero hour is hawkman yeah I mean, how many different damn versions of Hawkman did we have going into Zero Hour? At Hawkworld, we had reincarnation. Yeah. We had I, it, there, it was just nuts. There's a page in issue three, which is the only one that I was really able to track down from the actual series. Page eleven, they're showing all these Hawkmen converging together, going up against Abracadabra, right? No, Vandal Savage. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, he turns into. He becomes a giant hawk person, but there's probably a dozen different versions of Hawkman all flying together that get merged into this character. So yeah, you're right. That seems to be the the totem for all this. Well, the giant hawk character was recently seen in Metal. They actually <laughs> used that thing. That makes sense. Scott Scott Snyder used it in metal, and it's like th- there's a 
a Hawkman avatar now that this I mean I haven't read it but I've seen images of it uh, and and that's the joke you know um, Hawkman which which Hawkman are we talking are we talking Qatar Hall are we ca- talking Carter Hall are we talking the the Tim Truman Hawkworld stuff like there's so many things well you know what we're gonna make them we're gonna all make them one character you can't just do that because all those books featuring all the various iterations of Hawkman don't go away. They're out there. That That is a piece of living fiction that, that still exists in the real world. And ch- should someone choose to experience that, it's there for them. So to say this is Hawkman now, that is one of the problems of Big Two Comics, where it's it's a constantly evolving work of it's a shared universe you have all these different guys and gals working on it and it's it's constantly evolving and changing because these characters has have to constantly evolve and change or they stagnate and then nobody wants to read them anymore so it's a catch-22 if we keep peter parker the same peter parker we fell in love with nobody's going to want to read it because it's going to be the same thing for 50 or how many odd years. So in order to keep these properties fresh, and that's what they are, they're properties, they're, they're money-making things, um, viable, we have to have these events every so often. And th- there are things, being a longtime comics fan, there are things in Zero Hour that made me chuckle and and smile, like <laughs> the uh, the... Batgirl scene where um, Jason Todd that is Jason Todd right that's not Tim yeah. where Jason no it is it is it's Tim it's, it's Tim. Tim okay yep. where, where Tim's just like hubba hubba like wow look at you and he keeps saying it over and over like it's almost pervy you know <laughs> but looking at the way Ordway and the, the way she's drawn yeah, I would be thinking the same thing, you know, but the fact that she's walking, that gave me a, a smile. Like, you know something's wrong from the 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 get-go on this because you have Batgirl walking around, and that's not the way it's supposed to be because the Joker shot her. But it's, it's this zero-hour thing just plays to long-time comic book readers. And I think that's a problem with a lot of comic book events. That's the reason why, Dap said, we don't have evergreen events is because they, it's in, they're an Ouroboros. They're of that, yeah, they're, 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 and they're of that time. It's just a snake eating its own tail, right? So yeah. uh, are we wrong in looking for art in these things? Yes, there, there is artifice in them. And the, this proves it, be, because the, the the drawing by Jurgens and Ordway is phenomenal. I mean, it's just amazing. Ordway has a singular command of the human form. He's a great inker. He's a great penciler, and 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 Jurgens, in his own right, is is a great artist. So yes, Zero Hour looks good. It's just that it's the story is so freaking convoluted and unnecessary. Yeah. And there are it's unfortunate because there are things that happen in there are characters who appear who aren't referenced 
in Zero Hour, but unless you're reading one of the six-part crossover between Legion of Superheroes, Legionnaires, and Valor, or um, an issue of The Outsiders, right? It's you're not going to know who some of these characters are. And I and and I wasn't reading Outsiders at the time, so I didn't know. I, I completely blanked that Eradicator was part of that team at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's just like so. A lot of it was me, just a small spark where I remembered things that I had just not even filed away, just straight up forgot from decades ago. And it's just, it it's weird. Cause I, I remember what zero hour was all about and what it was supposed to do and, and what the fallout was and how it was kind of a, a sequel to Armageddon 2001, because you have wave rider and you have, monarch who becomes yet another character and it, it makes no damn sense though i know it doesn't make sense how how hawk okay we get how hawk became monarch that's fun that's i guess it's cool he went nutty because because dove got killed and okay that's at least there's a reason there but monarch becomes extant who obviously raided brother blood's castoffs Yes. And it doesn't... With some obsidian thrown in. Yeah, and it doesn't... There's really no justification for... At at one point, Monarch says, you know what? I can't do all this cool time shit that Wave Rider and Hunter are doing. So I'm going to hold back. And then almost literally the next page, it's like, aha! Here I am jumping through the time stream. It's like, well, how the hell did that happen? You you just said that you don't have the power. Now you do? It's just like there there's so much so many leaps of faith that we have to take with this story that I just I'm kinda glad that I started my road to a wider understanding of the DC universe reading Zero Hour because I'm not gonna go any further. I'm just going to read Legion. I'm going to I'm going to reread all my Legion books and whatever mm-hmm. information I get from them, great. I'm just not I don't I don't think it's it's a worthy endeavor to read all these events when to be honest, they're just chock full of bullshit. Yeah, there, there's no at the time there you could say that there was probably a payoff, but now I mean now it's just purely for research. There's no there's no real entertainment value in reading, no. rereading, revisiting. Well, you Zero know what? Hour. I won't go that far. I think the art is beautiful. Yeah, no, that and that's and that's fine. And and if you just want to see, you know, if you wanted to collect everything that Jan's Dan Jurgens has drawn or you wanted to yeah. see, you know, Superman from the nineties, then that, that that's great. Here's your thing. But as far as you know, things that deserve a spot on your shelf or or stories that that you need to revisit no only if you have the big ass bottle of tylenol nearby because it's it's very hard to this is one of those things where you're definitely going to need a flow chart at least with the original crisis you had the red sky you had monitor you knew what was going on and and yes yeah, some of the crisis tie-ins were kind of jank because all you had was the red sky or a shadow figure and that that one panel does not constitute a tie-in issue but there are things in zero hour that just that are very that that will only make sense within the confines of zero hour the way whatever happened 
Go ahead. Did you know that with the hardcover of this, there's a timeline? There's a they they give you a a post zero hour timeline. There's a chart that comes with the damn book. What does it say about the story that you need a freaking chart to follow it? That's true. Like it's just the 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 machinations of mainstream comic publishing are blindingly apparent with this story. This is like the 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 template for don't do it this way. Well, I got to tell you when you when you brought this up to me that this might be the topic tonight, my initial response was yuck. Like <laughs> I I I bowed out of comics at this point for this exact reason because I was seeing this kind of thing on the shelf. Now, reading this though, it's been fascinating. Um I got a thing here, and I don't know if it's part of the collection that you guys got, but it's a sampler. I found this in the dollar bin at, at Mile High Comics. And it's made to be a special section of the Daily Planet. It's basically talking about all these new characters or new iterations of older characters and why they're uh, exciting and the word hot and heat gets used a lot. In this. <laughs> um, there is an editorial at the beginning of this from Mike Carlin. Now, one thing I, I thought about with this is I had just watched the, um, uh, I think it's called The Secret History of the Comics. It's the uh, docuseries, and they talk about image comics. One of the episodes, it's a Robert Bookman thing. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. And they were talking about how Image unseated DC for the number two spot. Yeah. And that hadn't happened. I, did it ever happen? Was it all? Um, no, it's always, always Marvel and DC. Always Marvel DC. And this book to me is DC freaking the fuck out. And well, thinking, what are we going to do? I know this is a few years after the Image books came out because this is 94. Is that right? It's a year, right? No. Yeah. Images. Well, image is like ninety two ish. Late ninety two. Like late ninety two. Yeah. yeah, the fall of ninety two. Okay. So, I'm looking at this. I'm reading this sampler, and I read issue three, and it all seems to me a response to what was going on with Image, where they're making the characters look more like Image style characters. I see a yeah, version yeah. of Manhunter back here that could have stepped out of Youngblood. Um. The the thing that Mike Carlin says in the beginning, he, he says, uh, vast, dangerous, within your grasp, the DC universe. For 56 years, the DC universe has been growing, evolving, thriving, and now it's opening its doors wide for you to join the action. So this is aimed at, in my mind, kids who are coming into comic book stores for the first time to read image books. And DC is trying to Say, hey, we got some comic books over here, too, you might like. And throwing in, you know, again, this new version of Manhunter. They have something in here called Xenobrood. They did all zero issues. And I was curious, is this the first time any company ever did zero issues? Across the board, maybe. Because there was a zero issue for every ongoing being published. Yeah. Yeah, the back yeah. cover is, they call it Zero Month. Yeah. Yep. And they've got a bunch of new titles and then old titles that they were, basically as an introduction, 
to this. Um, there's a note in here from Lois Lane to Perry White. <laughs> Before she <laughs> vanishes, says, I guess. It says, Perry, here's an idea for an upcoming supplement. There's a new generation of heroes popping up. Could be the wave of the future. Lots of heat here. Um, throughout this, there's little notes like that going back and forth uh, from the photo desk at the Daily Planet. Perry, here's a batch of photos and notes on the new costume guys popping up. And it's got Rebels 94, Primal Force, Manhunter, and Deathstroke. Well, two of those books were good. <laughs> so I have a theory here, and I you gotta bear with me on this. This character of Extant, I didn't know anything about him prior to picking up this issue three. You're lucky, you're lucky. Um I had to look up on Wikipedia what the story was, and I guess he was Hawk from Hawk and Dove. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now I it's interesting to me that I think that's the only book Rob Liefeld ever drew for DC, right? Up to this point. Can I say that again? The, the Hawk and Dove miniseries, yeah. Yeah, Hawk and Dove was the, the series that Rob Liefeld drew yes. yeah. um, prior to going to Marvel. Yep. So you have this character who he's running around calling these old guys. Um, he says, old men, long past your prime. Uh, you're pathetic. You have no abilities, no powers, nothing. He looks like a character from an image book. And I was thinking, I had to look up what extant meant. I, I hate to say that, but um, it's survivor, basically. Um, and I was thinking how extant, ex-mutant. <laughs> um, and I, I, would, I would be willing to bet that they were going to call that character extreme. And somebody talked them out of it because it was too on the nose. Holy oh. shit. That's that's pretty heavy. I it's, just it's all there. Yeah. yeah. To me, I mean, that was the first. And again, like I'm coming at this from not having read any comics from this era, as far as Big Two, but like all that jumped out at me almost immediately. Um, and in, in terms of like trying to appeal to younger readers, I did also get Action Comics number seven hundred three which has some decent Jackson Geist artwork in here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jimmy Olsen is a bodybuilder. It is Nine Inch Nails uh, <laughs> belly shirt. Yeah. Why? Uh, I'm sitting here with my mouth open because I'm still thinking about the, the, the Liefeld image old guy connection. Because a huge part of Zero Hour is... The JSA, how they're mm -hmm. told, they're told like they're you, yeah. you are so old hat. You guys are, yep. you guys are way past your prime. Get the hell out of here. Let the young guns come in and take over. And it's like, that's the core of zero hour. And you have mm -hmm. a villain who, like you said, looks like he could be extreme from the, 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 the pen of Liefeld. That's insane. Yeah. But it, it's, it's the, the only hang up layer. with me. It does. But the only hang-up for me is that DC company man Dan Jurgens. That, that that seems a bit too meta for him. I don't know because Jurgens would later go to Image to do Wildstar. No, that or was Ordway. Ordway. That was Ordway. Oh, sorry, Ordway. Ordway. So, um, but Ordway, yeah. So that I mean, 
but I mean, you look at all those guys. I mean, these guys, I look, I had, again, I, I was like very curious about all this. Jurgens and Ordway were in their late thirties when this book came out. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to believe for guys like that, who are workhorses, who, like you said, Vince, solid art. I mean, the, the artwork in here is fantastic. And they're watching these guys like McFarlane become millionaires. Yeah. Yeah. And I've read Bob McLeod bad-mouthing McFarlane and saying he had to do double the work when he inked his pages because he basically did layouts. These guys were pissed that this was happening. I guarantee you these guys were pissed about what was happening in Image. And if Ordway went and worked there, it's it's you can be pissed, but when somebody's offering you a big paycheck, you'd probably be like, yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, just to counter what you were saying, David, I think that that I get what you're saying. I think you're right. I think that there was a uh, maybe some resentment, but they're also, you know, they've been with DC for a long time at this true, point, true. right? Yeah. So they it, were probably towing the company line a little bit. As if we needed if further we- um, information that Matthew is, in fact, a genius. He, does, <laughs> he, he, he wraps up the whole zero hour. <laughs> in one nice little conceptual bow. And, and I've only read one issue in a sampler. But I can't unsee no, I it now. I, 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 it's there. I can't unsee I don't, it. I, I mean, I, that's me just theorizing. No, you're right. You're right. Well, the curious thing is, like, I don't... Are there interviews about this time period? Because, like, if you read back issue, it's really Bronze Age. Yeah. And I'd be very curious to know what was going on behind the scenes when this kind of stuff was happening i'm gonna research this because i I mean i i don't i don't recall reading a zero hour related interview in either um back issue or uh it it wouldn't be in alter ego because that's a very specific yeah uh, focus for that magazine just in back issue i'm gonna i'm gonna look through what i have uh and I, i i pretty much have them all either physically and but has back issue done a lot of nineties interviews? Sure. Not really. To, really? I think there's an there's enough nineties. I mean, it's it's all the major players, right? But yeah. for the most part it is bronze uh, you know, eighties, but they, they strayed now and then. I may just be again, misremembering it. It could have been in um could have been in what's the, the Hero Illustrated? No, the the magazine that focuses on the writing. Oh, right now, right now, maybe, yeah, okay. maybe it was All that. Right, that, yeah. that I could I could see it being in there. That makes sense. So, but I'm gonna look into it because I need to know. I bet you, I bet that this the zero hour is a is a conceptual framework around the fact that the the older guys were getting pissed. Yeah, and then DC is scared. They're like, how how did we become number three? that's a topic for another episode (laughs) yeah good lord oh boy um so in in case you um think that this matthew allison guy is not savvy to what's going on in the comics in the in the in the fourth issue i i really wanted to bring this up and this is the place to do it because we just covered some history of comics there, there's an homage to the history of not only DC, 
but of Marvel and well as well on the very first page of Calamity of Challenge, number four. He goes into it. it well, why don't I, I let you talk about it because you're the one who did it. The, the, the text box above the splash page. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. That was, um, yeah, I said earlier, I worked at a comic book store. I actually got a job at this comic book store because I was so into Batman. And the Tim Burton movie came out on my birthday in 1989. <laughs> I got my first car. I went to the preview screening of it. And I found this comic book store who had a rack of of uh, Batman shirts. And my mom was in there with me because I think I still had my learner's permit maybe at that point. It might have been actually before my birthday. But anyway, the uh, I was buying all this stuff. I probably spent all my birthday money on it. And the, the owner of the store was talking to my mom. And she's like, you know, he should probably get a job here to pay for this stuff. And he's like, well, we're hiring. And I was so into comics and I loved every aspect of it. But seeing behind the scenes and seeing the machinations of dealers and distributors and, you know, and I'm, I live in Denver, so Chuck Rosansky lives here. I got to see a lot of Chuck Rosansky around this era, too. And my love for comics was hampered by seeing it started really with with Legends of the Dark Knight, number one. I was very excited for there to be a new Batman book. With the five covers? Five covers. And I watched as my boss told people, you got to buy a hundred of each of these covers because you'll be a millionaire in 10 years, is what he was telling people. And I saw people, they, they weren't buying other books on the shelf because they were spending their money buying multiple copies of this comic. And we all know that comic's not worth anything any right now. And that wasn't the first that was that was one of the first ones, but that wasn't the only one from that era. And it it really soured me on what comics were about. You know, we were talking earlier about the excitement of going to a comic book store for the first time, but then seeing that and thinking, this has nothing to do with why I like this. And at the same time was when I discovered uh um Kitchen Sink and Drawn and Quarterly and Fantagraphics it was all running counter to, to any of that stuff. So putting that in there was just kind of a nod to that part of my life and the, the melding of all of that. Because I still liked superhero comics. I'd still secretly look at them in the back in between looking at issues of Cherry Pop-Tart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that never left me. But, you know, it, it's still something that's it's a sore spot for me that that had to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. The business side of it got to that point. But I think it helped me do what I'm doing now because I, I realized, like, I don't really care about the business side. I don't have to really be a part of it. Um, I couldn't be. I don't think DC or Marvel would hire me even if I put together a nice portfolio. I just don't think I have the style for it. But, um yeah, so that that's really where that came from. Hey guys, um, Matt here from the UK, long time listener. 
long time ago caller. Um, I just thought I'd give you a call with a rather lovely story. I've just had a message from a very good friend of mine um, who has just told me that his elderly mother was watching American Pickers on the television um, and she saw a comic book on American Pickers and she turned around to my friend Dave and said, Here, I've got one of them in the loft. And she went, <laughs> she sent him up to the attic, as, we, as you guys call it, <clears throat> and um, came down with a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15. <laughs> so, apparently, um, somebody had gifted it to her husband many, many decades ago, and they just kept it in a, um, in a little sleeve <laughs> up in the loft. And so my mate Dave just messaged me today to say, no idea what this is. Can you, <laughs> can you ask around and sent me photos of Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, so, yeah, I, he, he's, um, I've set him up with an appointment to go and get it priced up and valued at my rather lovely and popular LCS. And um, it was just a bizarre... and It's the Holy Grail, isn't it? It's the Holy Grail. It was hanging around in the attic, and thanks to the show American Pickers, my mate Dave's elderly mother remembered she had Amazing Fantasy 15 in the loft. Anyway... I love you all, and um, happy 4th of July for yesterday. Bye. I, th- I think your style is what's missing from Marvel and DC these days. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, there are titles that I would love to do. Um, I'd love to do a Metamorpho book. Yeah, we go. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm selling myself short. I think... It's mo- It's mainly. Um, I don't have the fundamental skills to draw certain things. That's why my characters exist in the world that they are in because that's what I'm capable of drawing. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you gave me a script where Mr. Fantastic was, you know, holding the Baxter Building up above his head, I I couldn't draw that. I wouldn't want to draw it. That's a big part of it. I think if it was all cosmic crazy stuff on other worlds maybe but i i had the um the marvel tryout book when that came out in the 80s and the pages that they give you to pencil are all the most boring shit yeah Manhattan skyline cars taxi cabs like i was like i I don't want to do that and then i i asked for the uh application for the joe hubert school and at the time they want you to draw like a 1930s garage yeah all the and the and I it's like no, that's not. Well, that's by so, design. Uh, it's it's a lot of laziness too. I think if I'm being honest. Yeah, I I think tr- seeing if you can relish the mundane as well as the fantastic oh, is by design for them. Yeah, yes, for them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Because you know. Uh, any there there are a lot of people that can do the big cosmic stuff but very few can make talking heads work mm-hmm. you know so i think that they were th- they were trying to 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 pinpoint the guys that can do the quieter moments as well as the big absolutely yeah. absolutely i think that's what it was and it it weeded me out i think that that was what they were trying to do i and it pushed me in a different direction so i can't say that i'm not you know, uh, I can't, I'm not busted up about it, but I think that you're absolutely right. 
Um, I think it also was a way for them to see how people would interpret that because some people might say, okay, I have to draw every single window and I have to draw a billion people on the street. And going back to Alex Toth, he didn't do that. No, He knew how to imply a crowd. He knew how to show you just enough to know that you were in a bustling city without drawing every single strand of hair on people's heads. And I think they were looking for that too. I think they thought, well, if you can problem solve this in a way that works, then you're in. Um, and I didn't have the problem solving capabilities at that point. Yeah, I didn't either. I, 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 I started with I the start- Marvel tryout book again and it was just like, mm, I don't feel like drawing this shit. I want to draw Godzilla. I want to draw Godzilla, you know, fighting another kaiju or something. But uh, do you believe in artistic destiny? Because I think you've you found yours. If you had asked me that five years ago, I would have said no, because I am not. I guess I equate destiny with some sort of spirituality, and I'm not a spiritual person. I don't know if that's how you intended that, but... I think I think there is, yeah. I think I was destined to be doing what I'm doing now. I don't I don't mean that to sound more grandiose than it is, but yeah, I agree with that. It it feels yeah. right to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what I mean by destiny is, yeah, okay. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, and I believe that our potential as creative people exists but we have to work to unlock it Mm -hmm. it sounds crazy but i i I think cancor has existed in time you just had to work to unleash it and whether it would have been you i mean it's a thing that's specific to you and and if you didn't unlock it then it would have just been unrealized but I, I believe that because if you look at all of the things you've done and you've experienced and your interests and the, the psychotronic stuff and the bad movies and the, you know, the, the, the comics, like all of these things can't be coincidental. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they're all there. Sure. So, I mean, even the bad things, too, or, or the, the unpleasant things factor into creating the artist that is Matthew Allison. And I, I believe that very few artists unlock that true destiny. Uh, Scotty has done it, right? Sure. Um, I believe Conley did it with mm-hmm. Sabretooth Swordsman, yeah. right? Stegman is just now doing it. Mm-hmm. But you get a lot of guys that work for many, many, many years doing good work that's good but they don't tap into that well that was there when they started because they haven't worked enough towards it sounds it sounds really stupid saying it but no i know what you mean and i when you know going specifically about aaron conley he and i met each other when we were first kind of starting out and damon gentry who wrote saber two swordsman we were doing <clears throat> submissions for a blog called Covered. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. yep. Um, and 
they had a website and they're like, hey, you want to do a comic strip for the website? And I'm like, sure. And they sent me some stuff and they sent me a single strip of Saber Two Swords, which I thought was brilliant. And out of everything that Aaron was doing at that time, that was the one I knew looking at. Yeah, that's the one you guys should focus on. Right. And taking credit for I mean, they were going to do it anyway. But um, cut to a year and a half later, and I'm holding the Saber Two Swordsman book in my hands. Aaron had never done anything longer than like 10 pages before. Hmm. That's out of him. Like, it, all that stuff was bottled up in his head. And when he had the opportunity to finally unleash it, that's what you ended up. And he wins a Russ Manning Award the next year. Like, it totally deserved because it, it is unfathomable to me that a person who really didn't do much prior to that, put out that book. Right. It's unbelievable. And, and it, it is the product of hard work. Oh, I, yeah. I think that's the only way you get there. These guys that, that seemingly sit down and just start cranking it out, bullshit. I, I, do mm-hmm. not, I don't believe that at all. I believe there's a lot of sweat and blood that goes on behind the scenes. And they, I, I don't understand why they would pass it off as seemingly effortless for them. But... There it is, right? But you just don't, it just doesn't happen. If it happens, you're an anomaly. Is is there anyone that just jumps into the scene fully formed? It's rare. No, no. I, I guess I'm looking at it, you know, you have people who kind of worked in the trenches in comics for years and then finally found their voice. Um, not that the old Kirby stuff isn't great, but he was in his forties when he started doing fantastic four. Um, you know, but he put in a lot of work and, and effort prior to that. And I think that you see people who just assume like, Oh, he just started out great. He had to whittle away at shittiness for a long time. I mean, everybody talks about that, about how many hours you have to put in to create something. I know Aaron put in a lot of work prior to Sabretooth. I've never seen any of it. I don't know if he's thrown it away. I don't know if he doesn't want anybody to see it. I have to believe he's got a mountain of sketchbooks somewhere. I've got a mountain of sketchbooks that are in a landfill that I don't want anybody to see. Um, You know, I didn't start doing Kinkor until six years ago but i was drawing that whole time but just nothing i ever wanted to show anybody i'm going to be searching those landfills yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't publish them i'll just keep them for me <laughs> okay but it, it there there is a lot of toil that that goes into it and it, it's it's great to see when the 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 artist taps into it like like Michael Allred mm-hmm. with Mad Men. Yep. That, that was his thing. You know? Yep. I mean, he, he may not have made a million dollars at it, but I don't think he'll ever eclipse that lightning in a bottle that he created with Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, you could go down a list of, of a, a bunch of artists, and they, they, I mean, truly great artists, and they all have their their thing that they do that only they do, like Steve Rude and Nexus. Yeah. How many guys 
when when Rude and, and Baron had the falling out, how many guys fill, tried to fill in for Steve Rude? And yeah, Paul Smith was good. I mean, he, it's he's Paul Smith, right? Yeah. But but it just didn't feel right. No. It, it there was something there was there was a crucial component missing, and that component was Steve Rude. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's just I, I I love art so much that when when I feel that the 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 cosmic whatever is is connecting with a certain person it is it is truly wonderful to to be able to experience it i feel it with your stuff and you know i'm not just saying that because you're our buddy i i really feel it with with cancor it feels like this is what you're supposed to be doing i hope so yeah i I feel that way, I, you know. I feel, and that's kind of what the story is, is: is getting to that point where you can recognize that, and this is what you need to be doing. I kept myself from doing it for so long. Same, pounding my head into the wall, like you're not good enough. You're not. This is. You're never going to be this person or that person. That was that was the big killer for me. Was just constantly comparing myself to other people. You know, I right. set up. Right. The you know way too high a bar for myself. I, I do the same thing, but with me, it's when when you talk about art multiple times a week for ten years, and mm-hmm. you build whatever size audience, and you are known as you know a person who loves art. For me to put my art out there, I'm going to be judged. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be judged severely, and. I have the maj- the majority of my mindset is like I don't give a shit, but there's that fraction that really cares. That yeah. that's that little tiny. It's like the thorn in in the the lion's paw. You got this beast that wants to just go out and devour, but it can't because it has this little tiny thorn in its <laughs> in it, in its paw. That thorn is that small percentage of of my concern that really cares. That I'm gonna yeah. be that I'm gonna be judged, and that's what's yeah. keeping me from doing it. And and I just can't I can't listen to that anymore. Sure, right? Because I'm gonna I'm I'll be dead, and I'll have nothing to to show for a lifetime of of speaking and 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 teaching art. I'll, I'll have nothing of my own. And this, that's a that's a, a massively liberating viewpoint. I think that you when you reach that point. In in how you look at yourself and your art and, and what you want to be doing, and you can think of it exactly the way you just described it, you know. Right. And fear is the big killer in art. Oh, fear! If you're, yeah. If you're afraid, don't even do it. Don't well, even try. Just to get back to the the David Lynch book, <laughs> because it's it's been in the forefront of my entire week. He is fearless. Mm-hmm. He absolutely has zero concern for audience reception, critical reception. He does not care. Yeah, and and there's there are many interviews in the book with people who have surrounded him. He doesn't give a shit. And it's not an act. It's not, uh, you know, feigned bravado or or being the auteur. He doesn't concern himself with the way people perceive his art. He has to do it. And I'm I'm the same way up until that little 
certain point where I do care. And it's that little blemish that's keeping me from doing it. And and I'm sure you've, you there's a part of you that feels the same way too. There's it's difficult sometimes to be at a convention and have somebody walk up to your table and flip through your book, look at your banner, put the book down and walk away. And I know that my book is not for everybody. And I know that there's a billion different things to buy at a convention, but it still stings a little bit and it shouldn't. And I don't know what they thought. They could have thought, wow, this is cool. I don't have any money (laughs) and I'll come back later or whatever. You just you build this thing up in your head of like, oh, what did they think? Are they do they hate it? Are they like no? It's just that's just the nature of it. That's just the nature of shopping. You're gonna see something you're slightly interested, and maybe you don't get it today. Um, but that ego, you, you want every single person to stop and you know be, oh my god, this is the most amazing thing, and it's not the most amazing thing to everybody. It can't be right. But enough people have been enthusiastic about my book that I am so grateful. I'm so grateful to be doing this, and and I'm grateful to be on the show. You guys have been so supportive, and um, it's uh, the last six years have been amazing. Really have been. Well, the work deserves merit. It is. It is truly. That's true. I, I, I mean, that's what I, I. I believe it's a perfect confluence of an artist finding the thing they were meant to do and it doesn't happen every day and that's why uh, yes it's it spoke to me initially because it's lodged firmly in my wheelhouse but if you can speak to david and jason <laughs> at the, you know concurrently jason is the hard sell i i did not think jason would dig it at all because it's just not his thing but he recognizes that that magic spark in it too I was so pleased that he asked me to do a head sketch for him because the thing that I've learned after listening to 549 <laughs> of your programs, give or take a few, um, is that if Jason doesn't like something, he doesn't talk about it. Yeah, He won't badmouth it, but he just won't talk about it. And I don't think he's talked about Kankor all that much. Um, but... You know, that's fine. It's not his thing. And I can't, you know, fault him for that at all. That's, the, you know, that's the nature of it. Um, but again, I mean, it's he's been supportive regardless because I think he, you guys all, you can, you can look at an entire floor at a convention and find merit in pretty much everything that's on that floor because of your love for the, 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 the medium um, the hobby, whatever, however you want to describe it, you know, your your passion is spread throughout everything that you see there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I hope to have that too. I just uh, there's so much to be positive about. Right. So much. Well, J- Jason, I guarantee you that Jason adores your your artwork. <laughs> Uh, I can I can also say that he probably doesn't understand Kankor. Sure. And at least at least not up until issue four. Once he reads issue four, he's gonna get it. it the, okay. the, the light bulb's gonna go off and be like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> All right. I guess we should bring this puppy home. As usual, this episode has been brought to you by who? 
discount comic book service, dcbservice.com, where you can get your books, get them fast, get them delivered right to your door for a mere fraction of what everybody else is paying, such as we mentioned them a bunch of times tonight. You should definitely invest in this book by 100 copies because you'll be a millionaire <laughs> in 10 years. It's Bully Wars, number one, by Aaron Conley and Scotty Young. $1.99 from Boom. It's the Coda Trade Paperback Volume 1, $4.99. That's half price. Contains issues 1 to 4. And from Vertigo, some dude named Riley Rosmo and uh, Joshua Williamson did The Deathbed. It's how much? $8.49. Again, that's 50% off. In your travels, I'm not going to go long, hmm. but I uh, picked up one issue of a book that is very near and dear to my heart. I make no bones about it. I love good girl art. And I love the artists that can produce um, artwork featuring the female form. And it's it's many, um, let's just say contortions. This is uh, published by Bill Black. And you know that name immediately if you're a fan of this stuff because... It's from, uh, this is not AC Comics, is it? No, it's just Bill Black, editor and publisher. This is Femforce. Have you ever read Femforce? Who hasn't read Femforce at some point in their comic book reading? Have you guys ever read an issue? I don't think so. Many, many moons ago. Well, Femforce is the glorification of the female form. And and it was produced, this issue is number 75, which was published in 1994. So smack dab in the, in the zone with what we were talking about tonight. And it was uh, written by Bill Black, pencils by C. Bradford Gorby. I don't believe I've ever heard that name before or since. With inks by Mark Heike. Now there's a name I've heard. And Bill Black, who is also an artist in his own right. I look at this stuff, and it is far superior to many, many things on the shelves today. There's a hint of Michael Golden in this artwork. But it, you get these classic female characters like Ms. Victory and Night Vale, She-Cat, Stardust, um, the story is very standard stuff. Ms. Ms. Victory has a, a, a bad alter ego called Rad. Um, Ms. Victory's an all-American good old girl with flowing blonde hair. Rad has a, a one side of her hair is in a mohawk, you know, and it's it it's basically the Dark Phoenix thing all over again, but it's drawn and presented in such a loving way that. You you can't help but get enthused. I mean, Night Vale has garters on her costume. Who doesn't <laughs> love garters? Is there anybody, any male that heterosexual male that doesn't love garters? I mean, come on. Um, it's beautiful stuff. It's it's pretty one note, but if you love looking at beautiful women, uh, drawings of beautiful women, you'll love Femforce, and I do, I, and I, I I don't hide the fact. If I had a complete run of Femme Force, I'd be a very, very happy man. Mm. I'll have to look it up. Yep. What else we have? 
Uh, in your travels, I'm going to do this one because, well, I it, it is one of the, for me, best new books I read this week that came out this week. Um, I might as well do it tonight instead of um, letting it linger and, and, and delay it. Um, I know it is not the favorite for a few people, judging by not only our Facebook group, but uh, Tom King's replies on Twitter. But this is Batman number 50, the wedding issue by Tom King. Uh, Miguel Janine, colored by June Chung, and a slew of special guests, all doing a page where Bruce and Selena are, um, or Bat and Cat, uh, letters they had written to each other are, are being read. And uh, these pages include Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Becky Cloonan, Jason Fabach, Frank Miller, Vince, uh, Lieber Mayo, Neil Adams, Tony Daniel, Amanda Connor, Raphael Albuquerque, Andy Kubert, Tim Sale, Paul Pope, Mitch Jarrett, Clay Mann, Ty Templeton, Joel Jones, David Finch, Jim Lee, Greg Capullo, and an amazing page by Mr. Lee Weeks. Uh, like I said, I really like this issue. I have no problem with where the story is going. The last page is a kick to the gut. Um, if you saw infinity war and saw the end of that movie and realized who was still standing, then you, I, I think I look at this as uh, a continuation of that character story and what he is trying to accomplish. So I, I really don't have a, um, a, I, I, I get the whole, I, I get why people may claim uh, bait and switch. I'm not trying to, to, to spoil anything. I'm just going by what people have, have said online. Um, but I also feel a certain way if if they told you, if, if Tom came out, if DC came out and they said this is what's going to happen, then why would anybody by the issue I, I i read the solicits and i'm i'm there's some there, there there's some language that can be massaged and, and absolutely people can be led to think one thing or another but i do not um have an issue with what's going on with this story i, I understand people do and that's fine um but as far as this issue on its own and it's not really on its own because this th- th- there were a couple issues leading up to issue 50 40 um 48 and 49 all had to um, deal with uh, the events leading up to the wedding. But I I think it looks amazing. It reads amazing. Uh, In your travels, if you haven't already, um, and and I I think if you wanted to, you already did, uh, this probably wouldn't be really an impulse buy, but I'm using my In Your Travels this week as as kind of um, my, my pick of what I really enjoy this week. And that would be Batman number 50. Cool. Can I keep it real for one second? Of course you can. You know, I love Tom. 
Yeah. I, I think he's a phenomenal really writer. Did. Fabulous, yeah. fabulous talent. Um, I, I haven't read anything from Tom that I didn't like. Right. I have zero interest in reading a Batman Catwoman wedding story. That's fine. It just, and I, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't incite me to do anything other than run the other way. Listen, there are, there, there are, um, our boy Cliff down at NC. He, he and I are very similar in the sense that his, he, he likes his Batman as, as that, that, that solo adventure kind of hero. He, he, he's more of the, the, the 70s, 80s era right. Batman fan. And that's fine. And I love that. And, and, and that's great. Um, I know when 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 Catwoman said yes to Batman's proposal, um, everybody was giddy and and looking forward to if they want to call it character growth or or, or a, a new chapter or some evolution, whatever you want to say. Um, you know, obviously it's not the first time Batman and Catwoman were married. I mean, well, it would be as far as what we've seen because we know that the Earth Two Batman right. and Catwoman were married. They had Huntress as a daughter. Blah blah blah. Anyway. Um, you know, it, it depends. If you if you like your Batman not tied down, then you may want to keep reading Batman. If you wanted to see a a domesticated Batman and his wife, um, you might want to dig up those Earth Two stories. But in any case, there are just there's this was the the last page kind of just sealed it for me because you know you get i i am serious i mean i'm i'm not trying to spoil anything just for you two i know that plenty of people already read this and, and they've already made their feelings known so it's not it, this isn't whatever i would say isn't going to spoil anything for the people out there, especially if anybody who's read the new york times this week cause apparently they spoiled it earlier but um I definitely get what you're saying, Vince, and and I know I know that Jason was really giddy because he was he was looking forward to finding out what her answer was going to be, and when she said yes, he was like, okay, that's great, and and a lot of people were like, hey, that's cool because some of us weren't really sure, and and are they really going to go? It wasn't so much for me as would would DC allow it or go through with it. For me, it, it's more of what do I see as the character, and and do I see? And granted, this is Tom's Batman. This isn't the post-crisis batman this isn't the the, the, the pre-flashpoint or this is this version right now i'm just going to call it the, the the tom king batman and whatever he wants to do is ca- with this character that dc wants to let him do he's going to do with it so whatever baggage i may have with the character that doesn't really come into play here but i i don't know right now based on the story tom has told I don't know if I'm ready for a married to Catwoman Batman, but I, I, I definitely get what you're saying, Vince. Um, and it wouldn't be just a Batman Catwoman thing. I have no interest in reading that thing that Jason talked about last week with Kitty Pride and, and Colossus. Oh yeah. No, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't care you either. The, <laughs> the, 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 um, uh, the X-Men issue. Yeah. The, with, the, the wedding between Kitty and Peter. Yeah, but the which e- which e- didn't actually happen, right? Even other things like I, I wouldn't want to read a, a, a wedding buildup between Tony and and Mary Jane if that happened. Like I just sure, I, sure that that part, the soap opera elements of these things don't interest me at all unless sure. it's an ensemble cast, like say Legion. 
then you have a bunch of different things going on. The, whatever relationships are within those characters are only a small part. When the wedding becomes the focal point of issue after issue after issue, I don't care. Because it's, no, I, I, it's, it's, it means nothing to me. I, I, I do not... I don't disagree with you. And, and when I look at Legion, and I guess to some degree that might also trickle down into X-Men, but when I look at Legion... It works for X-Men too, yeah. And, and that's... And, and for... you know, But it also... It wouldn't feel forced to me if I saw that in the Legion, if, if Garth and Imra tied the knot, or if... if you know, or, or, or Joe and Tinia. There are just certain things where if... I th- that's just that's just part of it. Whereas with the X Men, yeah, you had Scott and Gene, and okay, that was great, and and you know they they they're on the same team, and and they'll protect each other. But you know when when it comes out years and years and years later, and you know one character died, one character was stuck in a bullet, and it's just like it it just becomes a lot of a lot of extra, and and I didn't. I don't. Kitty and Peter getting married could have been an annual. It didn't need a, a, a five part story that had that, that's no real payoff. Done these days. I know. Yeah. I know. And it, but it it's just it. And that's another thing with so, the, with the Tom Batman prelude to the wedding. All the one shots. Yeah, there's going to be. It's just. And I, I don't want to. That's read DC. It. That's you know. DC I'm sure it is. In and that's fine. And and what have you. And I didn't read any of the the. The wedding tie-in issues with, with with anarchy or whoever the hell was I I didn't I didn't read any of those I, I have them marked off to the side if I want to great but I I wasn't looking out for those um, it wasn't you know battle for the cowl for me or anything like that it's just I I'm just following the main story of what Tom is doing and and um, right I'm picking up what Tom's well, putting well down. that that said I will devour the entirety of Mister Miracle when it's published in one volume. It is you know, so, so, beca- so right. I that I want to read, and I know it contains the soap opera elements that I just said I didn't want to read in Batman, but it's a different thing. But it's Mister Miracle. Right, That's fine. Right. It's yeah, a different it's thing. Not, yeah, right. Matthew, what should they be reading? Uh this is a book. Um, it came out in two thousand five from Drawn and Quarterly. Uh, it's by the artist Seth. Um. Seth is known for an ongoing series that he did called Palookaville. Yep. And within that, he had a story called, oh, God, now I'm going to butcher the name. Uh, it's a great life if you don't weaken. Mm-hmm. I'm, pro- it's, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> but that was a story about Seth trying to track down this uh, New Yorker-style uh, artist. And it had a lot to do with obsession and um, uh, personal fulfillment, um, what you get out of someone else's art, and the thrill of the hunt and all of that. Um, this book, Wimbledon Green, is the one that I'm talking about. I have that. Oh, <laughs> have you read it? A long time ago, I actually got a free comic book day copy. Yeah. Okay. Or, or an artist proof, or whatever you want to call it. But yeah. Okay. Um, this is one of my favorite graphic novels ever. And um, it is definitely the best comic book about comic books I've ever read. Um, Wimbledon Green, as it says on the front cover, is the greatest comic book collector in the world. Mm. This 
book is full of every stereotype about comic book collectors you've ever seen. Um, everything's over the top in this book and, and purposefully so. Uh, there are characters in here called Chip Corners, uh, Very Fine Finley, um, <laughs> Ashcan Kemp. These are all these uh, characters in this community of, of uh, high-end golden age comic book dealers and collectors. And Wimbledon um, is notorious for buying the Wilbur R. Webb collection. If you're familiar with Chuck Brzezanski that I mentioned earlier, um, Chuck is the owner of Mile High Comics and he bought a collection in the late 70s from the man at your church. Right. Wilbur R. Webb collection is based on that. Mm. So the story is about everybody's interpretation of Wimbledon Green. There's kind of a Rashomon type thing. Everybody's got different versions of, of his story. And midway through the book, it changes uh, tone and it becomes like the comic books that these characters collect. Um, I hope I'm making sense here. They, they, there's a book in here that everybody loves called Fine and Dandy. It's sort of this Laurel and Hardy book about these two hobos. And they go on your typical adventures. They hop trains and they get amnesia. All of the ridiculous tropes that you can see in the comics. Wimbledon's story basically becomes... He's in an airplane, crashes, he gets amnesia, there's all these people chasing him. Seth becomes a character in the story named Jonah. Somebody mythical I've never read this. How did how have I never read this? You I don't have know. To. You have to. Um it's just beautifully illustrated. Seth in the beginning uh, he has an introduction where he talks about how shitty it is and the artwork's not very good and the lettering sucks. He drew this in his sketchbook over the course of six months while working on Palookaville. I, if I had done this as a thing that it took me 10 years to do, I would be so proud of it. And this is something he basically dashed off in his sketchbook. <laughs> it's so wonderfully realized it's exciting. It's hilarious. Um, if you've ever, if you are old enough to have been in, at a comic book convention in the eighties, you've seen these characters um, in real life. Um, they're just slightly exaggerated versions of that's yeah. Your travels. Wimbledon Green. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna have to get this. Please do. I started, it's a, uh, if you don't weaken, I mean, I started that and I never saw it to fruition. Were you reading it when it was in singles or did you get the collection? Yeah, the singles. Yeah, that that was only, I think that was coming out like every six months. It's hard to maintain enthusiasm when a book only comes out twice a year. Yeah. We just forget. You know, out of sight, out of mind, and and mm-hmm. unless you have a, a something that reminds you, it's hard to to stay up on these things. So, uh, but we we like to be that for you. Hopefully, um, we loved 
having Matthew along with us this time. Maybe Jason won't come back next episode, and and you can come back again. <laughs> or we could all go we'll drop another bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the next? What was the next event after this one? Uh, was it uh, track? What the hell was it? Bloodlines. Yes. No. Was nice. it Bloodlines? Or Eclipso? Darkness Within. No, it was Invasion, wasn't it? Was it? Armageddon? No, Invasion. I'm pretty sure Invasion was after uh, Legends or Millennium. Right, because... Yeah, because Invasion had the McFarlane. Yeah, McFarlane for an issue, yeah. Right. I'd see, maybe I need the hardcover of um, Zero Hour just to make sense of the timeline. But... uh, (laughs) Whatever yeah, the case. That's what you need. If, if you would like to, to join us on our various online um, presences, you can come to our Facebook page. We're always there. It's, it's bumping. Uh, come to our Patreon thing, patreon.com forward slash 110COMICS. Twitter. I mean, we're all over the place. Matthew's all over the place. Matthew, where can they primarily see your stuff? I have a website that is... Kankor Comic, C A N K O R Comic dot com. Um, that's I have a gallery there and my web store, and then I'm on Instagram at Kankor with two R's. <laughs> and I I post I try to post a lot of my own art, but I when I go down through my long boxes, I am constantly posting art from other comics. So if you like seeing random comic book panels then my instagram is right up your alley i think it's good stuff and and buy cancor calamity of challenge get your hands on this book if you haven't oh, seen yeah. it already because it's 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 what he's meant to do and and you'll just feel it in the meantime say goodnight david I'll throw you a bone. Throw you a little big bone. Wow. Good night. Dave. That's just impeccable. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Liz. It was awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.